This episode is brought to you by Mile High Summarizations. When you don't want to get all bogged down in the details, Mile High Summarizations is the solution for you. Sometimes it just feels like it isn't worth the effort to explain a complicated narrative when a quick overview will suffice just as well. So get in contact with our friends at Mile High Summarizations to make those cumbersome social moments a little more efficient. Man, how did you break both your wrists at the same time? I didn't quite break them both at the same time, but in-laws, right? You're an armadillo rancher? How'd you get into that? Well, you know how it is. It's all who you know, and then there's favoritism. Do you have the designs for that nuclear reactor core? Uh, let's see, there's some super radioactive material and we cool it with water, you get the gist. And now our listeners can use the promo code REREAD, one word, to try out their new pro package, scientifically designed explanations that provide top executives with plausible deniability in every situation. What do you think you'll pay for a product that could literally keep you out of jail? Don't ask. We did it, and it's done now. And thank you, Mile High Summarizations, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning. The following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We don't pretend that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We want to understand them in as much detail as possible, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Man, Greg, quite a lot of comments to get through today. Imagine that. That's so new, <laughs> but they're really amazing comments. Uh, literally, we could make an episode of these comments. But that's no fun. We want long <laughs> we, we We've got them this time. Also, the moderators at the Gene Wolf subreddit have asked us to do a Ask Me Anything, Craig. We'll be rounding out trio of podcasts doing AMAs on there, which is kind of cool. So, That's right. And now that we've actually finished the book, I feel like we're legitimate because we've, we've <laughs> at least reached one good milestone. Yeah, I'm going to be really curious what people would ask because I feel like we do an ask me every anything, you know, every episode. Yeah, that's true. It may be, there may be a little bit of redundant stuff, but yeah, so we'll, we'll post stuff on Facebook and Twitter when they do that and just come make us not feel lonely. Right. <laughs> just so we're just, even if you, even if it's something you've asked before, you can ask something on there just to get us talking. Right. So I was told that this would be January 21st. That's a Thursday and it'll start about noon Eastern time. So uh, 9am if you're on the opposite coast. Very cool. But it'll be like like any AMA. Basically, you can go on Reddit, ask a question. We'll be checking throughout the day and both of us will be answering. And we probably won't answer immediately unless you just happen to be on there when we aren't. But it's just a fun way throughout the day to for us to answer questions and sort of be direct, directly responsible. Absolutely. Let's see here. Steve Wald says, loving this podcast. Yeah, me too, Steve. He has more to say than that, though. On the recent episode, Hey Thor, there was a brief discussion of a typo in the text where Hey Thor intones, I, the old captain of the limping ship with its crew black against the silver sails and the 
coal sack behind it. Some editions have coal stack with a T, and it was proposed that this would be the proper spelling, making reference to a nautical term. However, I'm fairly certain that coal sack, no T, and proper noun capitalization is correct. The coal sack is a famous dark nebula in the southern Milky Way within the constellation Crux. Uh, I will add that is the cross. It is visible to the naked eye under dark skies in the southern latitude. This astronomical reference is also congruent with Hathor's mention of sailing with, quote, the Pleiades burning beyond the royal top spar. So Hathor here invokes the Colsack as another landmark in his interstellar voyaging. I learned from an earlier episode about how Wolf loved nautical lore, but it's apparent throughout the Book of the New Sun that he also knew his way around the night sky. Well, Greg, obviously for anyone who's listened to the John Crowley bonus episode, they'll know I agree that he knew his way around the night sky. And just wait until we get to the tale of the student and his son. Steve might have an ally on Reddit, Eurobubba. <laughs> Sorry, I just like the name. <laughs> it's also possible that Eurobubba and Steve are the same person, but I'm going to treat them as different people. Eurobubba says the coal sack incidentally is a nebula in the Southern sky. And then he provides a link to the Wikipedia page on the coal sack nebula. And Michael Andre Dreesey is on board. He says, I'm with Eurobubba on this one. I add Colsack to the list of 20th century astronomical landmarks that Hathor is going on about in his sailor ranting. As Craig noted, it's even capitalized. And he says, I regret that Colsack does not have an entry in the lexicon. Such an entry should mention the Colsack Colsack problem, which I was aware of. Oh, Mantis, the treachery. But <laughs> Vasily Ingogli says, Colstack makes zero sense in the context of the story set between the stars, and in a search of nautical terms, I'm not finding Colstack anywhere, including online dictionaries. I have to admit, I didn't even check out that word because I assumed it was obvious what it meant, but why? I don't know. Yeah, Colstack is not a thing. It's not like a smokestack. Weird about me. Actually, though, I do find this argument very compelling. Uh, like you said, you know, the word is capitalized. And as I said, there's no reason for Hathor's ship to have a coal stack, even if there were such a thing. And apparently yeah. there isn't. <laughs> so, hey, look, Craig, we goofed around and actually arrived at a consensus for once. <laughs> yeah, your source text is apparently the authoritative one. Apparently through deduction. I still don't know what Wolf meant. <laughs> and by the way, the Colsack Nebula overlaps the southern region of the constellation Crux, as they mentioned, the Southern Cross. And with Crux behind the limping ship, the ship is on the cross. Is that what Wolf intended? I don't hmm. know. That's pretty cool, though. And there's something else. Colsack makes an unannounced appearance in the Earth of the New Sun when Severian goes back back to the stone town in chapter 59 and there's a solar eclipse. Severian says, I looked too, but I saw rising only the cross and the unicorn, the stars of summer. He sees the constellations that are not usually visible at that time of year because those stars are behind the sun. 
If we make an assumption that the cross is the constellation crux, then the unicorn is probably the Commonwealth's name for Centaurus. So the eclipse in Earth and New Sun is actually one of those puzzles that Wolf explicitly laid out for us to solve in the appendix. And I don't think we've done all that well at solving it. The consensus is that it's Zadkiel's ship eclipsing the sun Mm -hmm. without much explanation as to why. But maybe it's Hathor's ship. Of course, some listener theorists will pipe up to ask, well, who says we have to choose between them? Anyway, that's something to toss on the Hathor pile for a few years. It could be uh, also. There's the passage in Earth when they are like, maybe there's only one ship. Right. (laughs) One ship crossing back and forth for eternity. Uh, Of course, it could also be the um, BFO's uh, UFO ship as well. Could be. Yeah. Could be. They are coming. Yeah. (laughs) Also, in that uh, little appendix in Earth and New Sun, Wolf invokes the procession of the equinox, that all-important concept from Hamlet's Mill. Mm-hmm. So, onward. Jack Redelf is not buying into our speculation about the sinister backstory of Agia and Agalus. He's never been more convinced that they are more or less who they are presented to be in the text. Agia and Agalus, he says, are bizarre characters and their plan is somewhat bizarre. Agia's actions throughout the series are enigmatic and strange. But at the end of the day, I chalk all that up to the mythopoetic nature of the Book of the New Sun. Hathor, he says, is another story. His appearance in Severian's dream in Citadel is very suggestive, although he's not sure of what. And Eurobubba, again, also takes issue with the theory that we proffered in Chapter 16, episode The Rag Shop, that it was Agia and Agalus who killed the guy with the lambrequin. He says, Every now and then, y'all mention the idea that Agia and or Agalus are the ones who strangled the guy outside the IHOP with the lambrequin. That's not impossible, but I seem to remember that the breakfast bar is actually nowhere near A&A's rag shop. Between breakfast and the shop, Severian walks a long way. It's strange credulity that the twins just happen to be engaging in a little random street violence so far from their own home base, but right where Severian was hanging out. If they were there, it almost has to be part of a setup on the part of the powers behind the scenes to bring Severian and Agia together. Whether it was Herodules, Father Aniri, Megatherians, First Severian, uh, uh, more than she seems Agia herself or some obscure parties. And if that's the case, and I'm by no means convinced it is, that strongly suggests that the unfortunate victim was not just some unlucky passerby. In the unlikely event that we can figure out who he might have been, we just might end up unlocking some fairly big mysteries. Now, I respond that Severian sees a lot in his walk to the rag shop, but I'm not sure he really walks a long time. They're up and eating breakfast after daybreak. They eat breakfast, and then they quit each other. And by the time Severian sees Agia, the shops are just beginning to open. The thing is that it just feels so random that the guy was murdered by a lambrequin. A lambrequin? Really? Yeah, I took a look at the passage again just now, and I it's hard to tell how much time or distance it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's, yeah, it's just hard I, to me. If you want to make a case that she did it, the fact that 
the shops are still just opening by the time he leaves means that maybe he didn't walk so far, but yeah, I'm still kind of with you. I mean, I honestly, with this one, I can see it both ways. Like on the one hand, it's strange credulity. Like he said, yeah, at the same time, Severian is no stranger to (laughs) straining credulity. So, but yeah, but this would be a very small sort of thing that, that could be setting the atmosphere um, right. And to turn into something else, yeah, it's it's hard to know. It's hard to know. Right. But I, I have to say, this is a wonderful sort of way that that all of us Wolfians like to read things, where you find something and you're like, "That's just a ridiculous idea." But if it was gonna make sense, it makes deep, incredible sense. I just it's very important. This is a stupid theory. It's very important, though. So right, yeah. <laughs> and remember that you or I proposed that maybe the victim was the actual rag shop owner. Still, mm-hmm. maybe they murdered and robbed whenever the money got tight. As for it being part of the plot, initially, I did think the meeting had to be pre-planned, set up. But after carefully considering other passages, this time I was convinced that the Avern Con is something that they'd done regularly before and that Agia going to get her disguise was on Agalus's signal, not her plan from the beginning. And Severian just wouldn't sell. But, you know, motives are just tough for Agia. I don't know. And Eurobubba is also puzzled by Agia. Not as much as me. Again, you know, who could be? One thing of many that I'm still trying to figure out, he says, is when Agia gets the idea to steal the claw. Was it really on the spur of the moment after crashing into the altar, or does she plan the Fieker race with that in mind? Is it plausible that either a shadowy string puller or she herself engineered the entire encounter with Severian precisely as a means to get hold of the claw? All these things are possible, I think. For all I know, they're all True, you're above a. Yeah, that's one that we talked about. We don't know. You know, I I find it less likely that it would be Asia setting Some that up, and more mm-hmm. likely that we're talking about Providence or something deeper going on. Yeah. Charles Gillingham also enjoyed the Haythor chapter. He says the Haythor episode was mind expanding, as always, and because the drugs kicked in halfway back from the garbage dump, your radio talk program got me thinking that is the recommended way to listen charles Charles lives in interesting (laughs) he goes on though everything haythor says throughout the books seems like one big rant i bet if his earlier speeches and the present ones in the chapter were put together with the photon storm rant it would all make more sense well you know we tried to do that charles as you know we, we kind of did that in chapter 30 episode. Lots of potential threads spun out from that, but, you know, nothing definitive. And when he said that, I started, I did start a file where I've gotten everything together <laughs> and I haven't gone through the whole book yet, but I figured, why not? It's not hard. No. So with all the e-versions that we have and just to see if they actually do kind of tell one similar story. And we'll see. do they? Don't know yet. Oh. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I never finished. I got started, but I didn't finish. <laughs> well, Charles <laughs> says that Hathor seems like a madman outside of time, seeing everyone around him at all points of their life. The comments about Dorcas could just as easily be about her dying in childbirth. Hmm. He says, um, 
Some have proposed Dorcas being found in a torn dress means her life ended with some sort of violence, though I always just assume it was from an emergency cesarean, the one whose attempt has foregone because of her death. Oh, that's a good one. Maybe Severian healed the incision when he resurrected her. Anyway, he says, So Severian and crew see time as we do, going forward, and the Herodules see time going backwards, and Hathor sees time as one big blob. These perspectives line up almost exactly with the Nornish worlds, though that's a subject I'm working on separately. Well, yeah, keep us posted, Charles. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. As for Hathor seeing time as one big now, that's appealing in its way. If it's true, we can forget about explaining his motives, though. It does also kind of go back to the Zadkiel thing mm -hmm. a little bit. Yeah. If you want to push that Heather and Zadkiel, yeah, yeah, maybe. Well, Ted Custer is thinking along the same lines, though. He says, I've always assumed Hathor's boasting about things he can do backwards. Colonel's back on the cob, butterfly back in the cocoon was his signal that he lives in reverse, like Famulimus, etc. Thanks for another great episode. And thank you, Ted. The BFOs, uh, people ask about this all the time. BFO stands for Barbatus, Famulimus, and Asapego, the Herodules that Severian encounters at Baldander's castle. Sorry, I've become one of those acronym slinging jargon guys. Anyway, the BFOs, still doing it, they travel back in time, but they appear to comprehend time the way we do. You know, T.H. Uh, White introduced the idea in The Sword of the Stone, the idea that Merlin was traveling continuously backwards through time. So he always knew the future, but was powerless to stop it because it was in his past and he knew nothing about the past. Charles Gillingham has thoughts on Hathor's limping spaceship. He sees Earth itself as a limping spaceship. He says, Earth is limping along because its peoples and lands have all but failed. Its biosphere is corrupted by aliens. Charles means the megatherians in the oceans, I guess, but maybe the Herodules too. He says, its history is broken and forgotten. Almost everyone is tortured and rotten in some way. And its fuel source is slowly dying out like a gutted candle. Every generation thinks our planet is dying and doomsday is the next week. But 1970s Chicago with its stinking rivers and lead belching cars <laughs> is about as close as we've really gotten. I believe Christ's message was more or less stop eating each other. That is also certainly what Wolf is trying to say, even if he dances around these profound ideas like a merry little prankster. I just feel good because now that means that I live about an hour away from Nessus. <laughs> Not now also about 50 years, but. Oh, okay. So we've got Buenos Aires, we've got Alexandria, and we've got Chicago. Ah. 1970 Chicago. <laughs> 1970. Yeah. A very particular kind. That's another time travel. There must be mists right. around there. <laughs> yeah, Chicago's very nice to go to now. <laughs> In the 70s, I don't know. And again, we got an assist from Michael Andre Durisi. Early in the podcast, there was a passing question about Father Aniri's fate at the Flood. I believe he died long before the Flood. The text establishes that Aniri was left in charge of House Absolute as Severian the Great went forth on his short trip to Yesad. And Flood survivor Odillo talks about his father's generation and the old glory days of Father Aniri. 
In the last episode's comments, Bowen Kaj on Reddit had information about Adam's second wife between Lilith and Eve, and it was great. But as I mentioned, I could not find any primary sourcing on that forgotten second wife. But Bowen Kaj is a stand-up listener, and he came up with the primary source. The Hebrew Midrash, Genesis Rabbah 18.4 and 22.7. Bowen Kaj calls the Midrash the rabbinical equivalent of Reddit. The question was regarding what Adam said after God created Eve, uh, Genesis 2.23. He says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Now, the big deal, if you can call it that, was the this is now part. This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Why did he say this is now? Well, Rabbi Judah ben Rabbi says, at first he created her for him, and he saw her full of discharge and blood, whereupon he removed her from him and recreated her a second time. Hence it is said, this time she is bone of my bone. And the other citation is from the same author, and he is arguing that Cain and Abel's dispute, the one that got Abel killed, was over the first Eve. I'm in no place to argue with the traditional interpreters of this passage, but I'm not convinced that the only interpretation of this text uh, full of discharge and blood is that Adam was disgusted by the process of her being made rather than that he saw yeah. something else. Just saying. The point is yeah. that there was in legend a third wife of Adam and here is the primary source and so it fits. Lilith, Eve, the unnamed wife. Uh, Jalinta, Dorcas, Severian. And Dr. Talos for Pandora, if you believe that theory. <laughs> He also included a link to a nice summation of the whole thing. Thanks, Bangkaj. Mike Lejeune has recently joined, and he's been binging to chapter 30 so far. Welcome, Mike. He says, totally engrossed in the back and forth between you guys, although I must say I'm closer to Craig's views than James. Ah, uh, yes. Well, <laughs> as we pointed out in this little scenario, Craig is Dana Scully, and I'm Fox Mulder after a few beers. <laughs> But I'll note that in the grand tradition of life imitating art, Mulder was usually right. That is true. Mike also has some perspectives on time travel in this book, and I thought they were interesting. The time travel in New Sun and Free Live Free seem very similar to me, at least in the respect of what happens when you get too close to yourself in the same timeline. You merge. I think that's what happened to Severian at the Stone Town and what Barbatus and Famulimus warned him about as Apupunchao. In Free Live Free, this merging results in an improvement of one's character. Can that be at least a partial explanation for Severian's improvement from first Severian to narrator Severian? Hmm. I'm That's going to have to consider that one when we get to the end of Cloth of the Conciliator. Let's, let's, let's put a pin in that. I'll make a point to reread Free Live Free. Stephen Frug is back. And I can do the Frug. He says, Now I begin again. It has been a long time since I wrote anything to this group. I have been derailed by world events. These Asian invasions can be quite troubling. Welcome back from the war, Stephen. He says, But I have at last listened to episode on the challenge. That's uh, chapter 17. 
It was, as always, a fabulous episode and a joy to listen to. One subtlety that I thought that Craig and James missed was about the smile that Agia and Agilis give Severian when he wishes he knew more about religion. Mm. Okay. It's not because they think he's old-fashioned, as Craig and James implied. Rather, it's because they think they're going to kill him. And they see an irony in a dead man walking, wishing that he knew more of religion, because he soon will, I guess, yeah. If yeah. only he knew what they were thinking. And the irony is doubled since, in fact, if only they knew. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's a that's good one. Good. And he says, Craig mentions rightly that the passage toward the end indicates that the earlier Autark's memories fade over time. Another example I found was in chapter 41 of Earth of the New Sun, toward the end, where he refers to the memories of the Autarchs before his immediate predecessor as, quote, Veiled lives that lie behind the last, memories that dim as they grow stranger and stretch backward, perhaps to Emar and behind Emar to the age of myth. He says that's quite the foreshadowing, albeit of a type that it's hard to imagine anyone noticing on the first read through. Severian writes, Emar is dead, and such memories of his as lived for a time in the blood of his successors are long faded, so mine in time shall fade too. This is our first hint that Octorian memories live on in later Autarchs, but who notices that fact the first time? It's also an explicit note that Severian will become Autarch, arguably the first, since, quote, I have backed into the throne could, in theory, mean another throne. And then he adds as a parenthesis, although isn't that false? It would have been true had Severian failed to bring the new son as his immediate predecessor had. But if he brought it, wouldn't he know there would be no more Autarchs? Does, quote, so mine shall in time fade too, imply that he thinks that he will fail? Okay, Craig, let's pause here and think about hmm. this. There are a number of possibilities. One, of course, is that Severian is not positive he will succeed. Certainly, Malrubius gives him no assurance that he will. And that might be mm. a problem for the time loop interpretation of the first Severian passage, since if he deduces so much from Earth of the New Sun, but not that fact itself. Another is that although Severian knows Earth will be destroyed in the coming of the New Sun, he isn't clear on the details of what will happen after he passes the test. It might take another thousand years in Earth time for the New Sun to arrive. Or he might have to be sent back in time and wait 2,000 years. Yeah, for Another possibility, as David Stockhoff proffered, but David will never hear this because he participates in the Facebook group, but he doesn't listen to the podcast. The other possibility is that Severian is saying that the memory of his own existence will fade as it does with everyone. Right? He, he's going to die. He knows that. Right. And right. it's going to fade. Stephen Frug is not done with us, however. He says... I do have a few quibbles and disagreements, probably covered since then, but oh well. You were wrong of a lot, try to break me, make me strong. You were wrong of a lot, try to break me, make me strong. The main one is that Craig and James are over-interpreting the conversation that Severian has with Agalus. Hmm. To be fair, Stephen, that's what we all signed up for. <laughs> but he goes on, in particular... They spend a lot of time on why he would try to buy Severian's sword. I think the answer is the one they gave him later, because it was valuable. They were happy to kill him for it, 
had killed people before, as Severian guesses. Why do they offer six more than it's worth? Well, that's easy. He's lying. Six Christos is not more than it's worth. Agia later says it's worth more than their whole shop, and that, I believe. Not only was he lying, but he was lying in a very standard way people do when haggling. I doubt he expected Severian to believe him. Yeah, that makes sense. It's just the way of speaking. One immortalized in the work of another great fantasists in the personage of Cut My Own Throat Dibbler. When Cut My Own Throat Dibbler says he's cutting his own throat, he knows his audience doesn't take him literally. Similarly, with, quote, that's more than it's worth. Yeah, you know, Craig, I, I, I agree. I like that reading in retrospect mm-hmm. i really do yeah yeah he says wolf plants lots of puzzles and they're fun to figure out but i don't think we need to invent puzzles where he doesn't place them <laughs> i disagree actually <laughs> actually i really do but first Stephen wraps up with there are a few mysteries here the ongoing mask or just ribbons or what is clearly one most of them are answered in the later conversation in Agalus's cell, I think. Well, no, and I should say, too, that I, I agree. And, and I've said many times that part of the challenge of doing this is that when you like, I mean, because we reread each chapter like what, twice each time we're doing mm-hmm. it. And we're always probably or sometimes more and we're always looking for little things to comment on. And the problem with that is that you kind of lose the at least for me is lose the perspective of just reading through the story in real time, like everything is sort of abstracted and where like a spotlight is is shown on every little detail. And yeah, it, I've noticed that many times, like, honestly, the one thing I miss are the jokes. Like it's like (laughs) the, the humor. No, seriously, like doing it this way. I keep forgetting that things are funny. (laughs) It's because I'm, I'm looking at it and from such a weird perspective. So yeah, I totally, yeah, I totally agree that, that if you're looking for just like, what are they, in the context of what's going on, all that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. It is a, a um, Achilles heel that mm-hmm. we crawl along the, the bottom blindly in some ways, uh, picking up these little yeah. bits, lolling them around in our mouth saying, is this food or not? I don't know. Meanwhile, uh, it's easy to miss the scene itself in that way. And I will say, you know, what anyone listening to these comments probably already knows. And if Stephen is listening, he's caught up and he knows it too. And he's currently correcting and appending our newer theories. What you know is that we, and especially I, have modified our opinions of Agia and Agulus um, at least twice. And so, yeah, you know. But the other thing is, and here's the part I disagree with, with Stephen, when he says, I don't think we need to invent puzzles where Wolf doesn't place them. I mean, on the face of it, it's true. But I found that what is working for me best right now is what I call the squirrel reaction method. (laughs) And that is when something new comes along and there's a rattling in the bushes, a squirrel doesn't wait for danger to undeniably present itself to freak out. He freaks out first and then he considers whether it was necessary later. And I acknowledge that I tend to treat everything that happens, as you've said, Uh, that appears anything that appears unlikely or a statement that feels injected into a passage without obvious precedent as potentially a body that wolf is hiding under the rumpled covers of his prose. And then I just kind of tend to rely on you, Craig first, and then everybody else later 
to point out, uh, James, I think that's just the pillow. I think we have failed to crack much of this book, though, because Wolf has dressed his subterfuge in the standard tropes of fantasy and science fiction. And we've mistaken a lot of those tropes as, you know, merely that. So, no, another way to put it, too, is that I agree 100 percent with the idea that we shouldn't be creating puzzles when there's not supposed to be a puzzle there. I also at the same time think that one of the fun things about wolf is just sometimes not knowing what's a clue and what's a mm-hmm. puzzle. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Which both of those seem like they can't be true and yet they are. Yeah. He's got us jumping at shadows, so to speak. Yeah. But anyway, I'm really grateful for Fruke's uh, corrections and points here and oh, every other listener always. who has provided correction. Right. And put you know your your corrections, your pushback, your elaborations, your extensions on our furtive musings. You know, this podcast would be half as useful, at least, without you guys. And by the way, just just to throw a plug in here, just for the heck of it, if you're interested in a really cool graphic novel all about philosophical and religious ideas, uh, Frug has written a really cool. Uh, graphic novel called happenstance mm-hmm. and he didn't ask for this plug but i bought it one time ago <laughs> when we were starting to get to know each other and it's really fun it's a couple people who are coming from a one a jewish and one a evangelical background and both talking about faith and why they're there but it's done in a graphic novel format it's really cool excellent really fun yeah also this was interesting on reddit someone asked for secondary resources for someone who had just finished reading the book of the new sun and is going to read it again. And all the resources you'd expect were offered. Castle of Days, uh, Michael-Andre Driussi's books, Mark Aramini's Between Light and Shadows, The Earthless, Alzabo Soup. But one user, uh, Squiggly, said, piggybacking on this question with one of my own, is there a podcast like Alzabo Soup, but which treats the entire five-book cycle as fair game? Alzapo Soup is great to listen to as you read it for the first time, but I'm thinking about doing another read-through, and it would be great to hear someone's fully informed opinions on what certain things are. Hmm. James, you don't have to make fake accounts. To <laughs> well, yeah, I wouldn't have said fully informed if that were me. So, <laughs> so yeah, I've heard of, I've heard of a podcast about that. I have to think about that one. And last of all, Craig, we got a review on Apple Podcasts. Very cool. This one is from Disapp1969. It's entitled Long Do. It says, I listened to two podcasts, and they are both close to my heart. To both, the quote I think that perfectly fits the value of your work is from William Wordsworth's The Prelude. What we love, others will love and we will teach them how. Thank you. Five stars. Man, that is really, yeah, that is really beautiful. Thank you. That is really cool. 1969. You've also reminded me that I've never read The Prelude. And I think I was supposed to. I think it was on one of my reading lists for my comps, and I just didn't. (laughs) So I read other stuff, but I didn't have to talk about it, so it was okay. Well, I do love that line. That was great. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you very much. That is so cool. And one last thing too, just to say thanks again to Glenn McDorman from Gene Wolf Literary Podcast for talking to us last time, just because that was so much fun. Yeah. Yeah. We had our Christmas special 2020 uh, episode where we talk about four 
Gene Wolfe short stories and we spoil them all to death. So, yeah. So if you're happening to just listen to podcasts that pop up and the latest ones, yeah, go back one because there's some cool Christmas bonus stuff in there. Yeah, definitely. And now, Craig, let's stop messing around and get on to summarizing this sucker. The Shadow of the Torturer. Chapter, well, there you have no chapter. (laughs) (laughs) The Shadow of the Torturer. That's what we have. The whole book. We made it. We went through the whole thing, which is still crazy. And now we're shutting down the podcast. Bye, everybody. We're we're bored. (laughs) This takes a lot of work and time. The book's not that good. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Overrated. (laughs) Podcast completed. So here we are. First quarter through the book of the new sun. How are we doing, Craig? I think we're doing pretty good. We're not doing things as I kind of thought we would. I should say we haven't ended up where I thought we would end up. That's what I should say. No, 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 no. Me neither. Me neither. Yeah. When we started, I said, yeah, I would just like to better understand what's going mm-hmm. on. You know, and you said you'd like to know if Severian is a good guy. My argument was, you know, it's irrelevant whether he's a good guy. This is a story about a society. It's a sociological fiction. It's a society in crisis. It doesn't know it's in crisis, or at least most people don't. We drill down on a single nation in the world that is governed by a military dictatorship. The rest of the world has alien, transhumanist, Lovecraftian monsters indirectly ruling societies from under the sea, whole nations. These monsters serve as, you know, quasi or genuine deities for these societies. The particular nation that we're looking at, the particular military dictatorship is special in that it is dominated by a small cabal from another alien power, a cabal represented by a guy called Father Aniri. His alien hegemony is based outside the universe. Systematically, it influences whole galaxies. The Earth planet is just one more policy for them, apparently. And Severian is important because he is a special lever in time. He can choose. It's important, I guess, that he choose whether to let Earth follow the course on which it was set when a black hole was put into its sun, or he can choose to scrap it and start again. And I think that's what matters. Not especially Severian himself at all. In a way. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's pretty clear we've been talking about this, but I go in a different direction and that I still and I'm probably even more convinced now a little bit, not of the opposite, not that I think it's not a sociological story. Like, I absolutely think that the book would not be interesting at all, if not for the world. I mean, Severian by himself might be an interesting story, but he's he doesn't carry an epic like this, I don't think. But no, his moral path still is important because I feel like the whole hinge of that society seems to rely on him. I mean, and it's not even so much his choice. Like, I don't know, even this will be a fun question when we get to Earth of the New Sun. I'm not even sure whether Severian chooses so much the path. It's more about him being judged, at least the way I still think I read it, where it's more about him being judged whether or not humanity and Earth should be renewed or not. And who knows, maybe we'll come to a different idea that there is a sort of fun upside down world where maybe what they decide is, yeah, if Severian's the epitome of the earth, you need to wipe it clean and start over, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, and that could well be, I don't know. But I 
think that when it all hinges on this one person, then all the questions about whether or not Severian is a good person is really important. Is he good or bad? Is the judgment of him fair? Are the judges good or bad? You know, so he's really still the key to all of this. So, and I also just don't know yet. Like I'm still, I feel, I feel weird saying this because I know what I think right now, but I'm, I'm expecting that I'll change my mind. (laughs) (laughs) about certain like what these other forces are and what the Megatherians really are and what the Hyruduals really are as we read more. Like how good are they really? Are the Megatherians really all that evil? Are the Hyros and the Megatherians kind of the same thing maybe in certain ways? I don't know. But all of that still the way the story is told and I think just the way the mechanics of everything is set up still depend a lot on Severian and and the kind of person he is and plus the other thing is so much of the plot seems to hinge on all these forces pulling severian in different ways you know they're trying to sway him one way or the other so he's the linchpin still of everything and it's still not clear to me even even going forward and listening to baldander's discussion with severian at the end of earth of the new sun in in the throne room where he seems to be explaining that you know the the new sun and the megatherians their courses are not directly opposed yeah i don't necessarily understand what their game is still even after that conversation so mm-hmm. uh you know stick around you know eight years from now or so we'll uh <laughs> we'll get into that i enjoy that like that's one thing i like about the way we're doing it is even though i know we even though we're trying to take everything into account we're still reading it kind of a fresh time this time and saying we're trying to come up with new reasons to put things together so honestly yeah i feel like my ideas about whether or not the hyroduels are actually good <laughs> is is something of a question so but the other thing for me that was really important my big question was also about the relationship between this book and religion both wolf's religion but also just what the book itself is trying to say about it so you know, just questions of like, is this book where Wolf is trying to speak his faith through the world somehow? Or is he trying out a world that is totally different from his faith, more like a thought experiment? Mm-hmm. Just because so much of the symbolic structure of the world does depend on religious imagery, you know, resurrection and death, a lot of Christian moves, the conciliator, you know, so I really wanted to know how Christian is this story? Yeah. And it's funny, as that's come up in discussions on Facebook or social media or whatever, Lots of people have really strong opinions that like, well, obviously (laughs) it's one way or the other, you know, as if it's like an assumption that you start from this time, I'm trying not to take that assumption and I'm really trying to see what the book says. And I think what surprised me was how little of that there actually was in shadow. There's a lot of talk about church structures. There's a lot of hints towards things, but it's not really developed. Yeah. So it surprises me that even when I started to read it the first time, I remember thinking, Mm -hmm. especially when you hear about the conciliator, like, oh, that's Christ. This must be a Christian story in some way or another. But now I'm like, well, what things did I actually pick up on that said that? Or was it an assumption that I was making about it? And so, yeah, I'm finding that's one thing that did kind of surprise me as we've gotten through the first book is how rarely we have talked about sort of straightforward religious themes so far. Um, and I'm curious if that's going to keep going or if more and more will, will come up. Yeah. Well, I think it's, I, I've already mentioned this actually in our bonus episode with Michael Andre Durisi, that there are some aspects to this book because Severian isn't a divine essence, right? There's no evidence that he's anything other than 
a person in this world, a special person, special skills, a special situation, but just a person. Yeah. And if you take it that way, there are some aspects that come up in Citadel the Autark that are theologically problematic. Mm-hmm. But if you take it as more of a symbolic structure, looking at aspects of faith and Christianity and the Trinity, then, oh, okay, that makes perfect sense. You know, like the scene where Severian sits and he realizes that he's praying to himself. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, you know, that's theologically, that's a problem. But yeah. if you remember that Jesus would pray, well, uh, you know, for, according to Christian theology, that's exactly what he was doing. Mm-hmm. So difference then is that Severian is not part of a tripartite God. That's right. Yeah. Or maybe, or is he, or he is the conciliator. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Or Wolf is setting up something to be like that. And he's rationalizing the concept mm-hmm. without necessarily duplicating it yeah. as far as religion goes. Yeah. So that's still interesting to me. What we're going to find as we go forward, because I'm, but yeah, I'm surprised that I didn't find as much. As we went through. Yeah. Yeah. So did we, uh, we succeed in our goals? Do we get to answer that question or do we have to let other people answer it? <laughs> well, I don't care about them. I got <laughs> I'm going to- That's right. We did say originally we were just going to do <laughs> this, right. have conversations with each other and then record it. That's yeah. right. I, I can edit them out at any time. So hell with y'all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what did you think? Well, I think I did. Okay, cool. I think I, I think I, I did think I did succeed far more, far more than I thought. Look, this, as I've said multiple times, this was not my favorite Gene Wolfe novel, mm-hmm. which is probably kind of frustrating to some people when I talk about the the first Severian theory because oh look, it solves all of these problems in this book because you know it it's, for me it solves his mother, it solves Malrubius, it solves Thea. Look, it solves his memory. Oh, it's perfect, it's perfect. And everyone's saying, you know, this book did not need fixing, James. <laughs> <laughs> it's random and weird, and that's the way we love it. Yeah. And so, yeah, so I, I totally, I totally get that. But for me. I succeeded far more than I thought. I honestly thought that the only thing we were going to do here is go through this book and tabulate the plot holes and problems <laughs> and identify some theories that could not be true. I loved The Earthless, but I thought it had failed in cracking this book. People would pitch ideas. Others discounted them. I personally was never moved forward as far as a unifying theory. I I could see things that interested Wolf in the story. I figured we'd tabulate those as well. I didn't think we'd come to any significant conclusion in my own mind. I know. And yet here I am. There are still some things that are driving me batty, but if you were to just take the first 14 chapters, I feel like, oh, hey, I, I, I know what's going on now. Yeah. On that, I feel like we succeeded too, because what I hoped we would get out of this was more Earthlist kind of stuff where we actually did find some new ways to look at it. Because, you know, if I put all my cards on the table, I don't think I will probably ever come up with a single, here's how in my mind, all the pieces fit together perfectly in a decoded 
set. And and honestly, I hope I don't because <laughs> it's much more enjoyable to me when there's still mystery or confusion. Not that I think it's bad mystery or confusion. I just I enjoy trying to figure things out. And I enjoy the fact that maybe Wolf was esoteric in ways that I just haven't guessed yet. So all of that's good. But I, I love the fact, we, even though I don't necessarily agree with it, the fact that you've, or agree with all the parts of it, the fact that you've put together this really cool theory and come up with all kinds of ways that different problems tie together is way more than I expected we do. So that is really cool to me. Because honestly, I mean, when I read something and talk about it, I'm not usually in there to prove it one way or another or say that my way is right. What I'm looking for are new ways to see it. Um, and that's, you know, in my teaching and, and in, you know, the reason I like literary criticism and whatnot is to have a text opened up in a different way for me. And so the fact that we have done that a few times over, I think, for me means that it's it's succeeded completely. Yeah. So that's why I still want more theories, even if I don't agree with them all, because I want to see more, more ideas, more ways to look at it. Yeah. And speaking of that, I want to talk about how my idea has changed about the quality of this book. Cool. The reason why this is a good book. So the first time I read this, I, I, I mentioned this before, many times in various places that I told the guy who loaned me, loaned the books to me, I said, um, as a creator of worlds, this guy is amazing. Mm -hmm. As a writer, you know, He's kind of so-so. <laughs> <laughs> and it really wasn't until I read The Fifth Head of Cerberus that I said, oh, oh, now I see. I didn't, I had no idea how to read this book. And, and then I started telling people, this is the best science fiction writer ever. This is what we started doing science fiction to produce. And, and he's done it. And now you can just shut the door on it. And I used to believe that this was a good book because of the world building the detail, the complexity of the world. I, I eventually came around to believe that it was good because of the prose, the moments of reverie from Severian, Wolf's skills as a writer on full command. And then later, I thought it was good because of the underlying structure as well, that Wolf was going headlong into science fiction as myth creation, as Hammett's Mill suggested that science fiction writers should. The New Sun the mythical presentation, the procession of the equinox, all that. What surprised me now, and once again, it brings us back to the first severity theory. What surprised me now is how I see this work as greatly expanding the concepts of acceptable storytelling. Wolf has written a prose novel according to the rules of modernist poetry. Doing this, of course, is you know part of the wolf style, going back to the beginning. Tell a story, allude to things in the text for the reader to work out, or not. This is a postmodernist because Wolf actually cares about the narrative that he's alluding to. You know, it, it's real. He's he's got the, a real thing in mind, but it's not explained or maybe even explainable in any final way, like a poem by Virginia Woolf or T.S. Eliot. And finally, it's amazing because, well, imagine this novel from the point of view of Wolf, the author of Hero as Werewolf. And I want to touch on the idea again that I'm not sure it 
matters whether Severian is a good guy. Wolf is interested in the way the reader roots for the protagonist, regardless of what he's doing or what he is like. If the protagonist is a king who's attacked by pirates, we root for him. If the protagonist is a pirate, we want the hoarding king to be ripped off. So Wolf says, I'll write a story about a torturer, a carnifex. And guess what? This executioner is going to destroy the world. That is a classic villain. <laughs> so is he a good guy? Yes, in a sense, because he's the protagonist. And from the protagonist's point of view, he's always the hero. And there is enough evil in the world that anyone can fill the role of villain or anti-protagonist. And then get this. Wolf doesn't just tell the tale with this guy as protagonist. He makes him a Christ in this world. He puts all this religious symbolism around him. So he's going to say and do things that from a particular frame of morality, even a frame that Wolf agrees with, he'll do and say things that are bad. But Wolf is going to take his side and put that morality itself on the examination table. Wolf isn't creating a good guy. He's taking what we consider to be a bad guy and forcing it uncomfortably into goodness. So what do you think of that? I agree. And I think that's one reason why, you know, sort of it's weird. It's the same reasoning makes me think that, yeah, that's why the question of Severian's, you know, goodness or badness is important, but, but from a different thing. First of all, I, I agree with you on the idea that this is modernist in style and sort of like the big thing is about how the story is told in addition to the actual story. And I mean that in addition to also what's more important about new sun is more about how it's told than even figuring out the truth of what's going on with the high duels and whether or not they are good, because what is really unique here is really what Wolf has said all along that what he's trying to do is write from the perspective of someone who lives within their perspective. And isn't going to give you necessarily clear clues about what the truth is beyond that perspective. That's really what kind of makes this modernist because he doesn't give any sort of clear, you know, wink to the reader to say, and now you got to know that actually the real truth is this and Severian is wrong. Like there are all kinds of hints and we spend so much time and in you and I, me <laughs> yeah. in particular, have spent a lot of time trying to figure out, well, what is he really supposed to be doing or is he really right? But honestly, and, and this doesn't make it postmodernist, this doesn't make it relativist, but I don't think that in, this is where a lot of people may disagree, I don't think that in the end you are supposed to decide 100% whether or not Severian is right or wrong, because I think that what's more important is being within the situation of not knowing, but still having to act like Severian does. To me, that's that's modernist because it's sort of saying there's it it doesn't get rid of right or wrong. Severian still has to make choices and he yeah. still thinks he's making the right choices. But that doesn't mean that he's ever offered certainty that what he's doing is the right or wrong thing. That also means that we're in a position of never being able to say with certainty whether or not he's a good or bad guy. But I don't think you can escape worrying about <laughs> whether or not he's a good or bad guy. Does that make sense? Like like that weird thing? Yeah. Okay. So in that way, I may be coming more around to what you were saying before. Yeah. 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 In a sense, that's the point, right? You're supposed to, uh, once again, going back to Heroes as Werewolf, you're supposed to look at that guy, a guy who has remembered times 
when he has eaten an infant. Mm -hmm. And you're supposed to say, is he a good guy? Is he from his perspective? Look at look at the situation he's in. He didn't create the situation. He is a creature in this world and he is playing his role in this world. Is he a good guy as the werewolf? Yeah. And that's one very big reason why for all my interest in the question of how is religion in this book, I may not get an answer because, <laughs> and I may intentionally get in my own way of getting an answer, but it's the same kind of thing where what's so cool about the book was that you can't get away from banging your head against that question and sort of coming up with an answer, but then finding out how it's wrong. So what I don't like necessarily are readings of it that assume from the get-go that, oh, Severian is good because he is the savior figure. And so therefore, Wolf is saying that everything he does actually must be interpreted as good from a certain person. To me, that's yeah. a little too simple. Now, I know lots of people who actually do have that reading and have very complex readings of it. But I also don't like the other side of that, which is that when you realize, oh, Severian may not be a good guy, therefore... I'm smart enough now to have figured out that, oh, Wolf is showing me a bad guy and I'm smarter now because I can just sort of see that he's, and now I'm not taken into it anymore. That also seems false because you're not in the situation that Severian's in anymore. You've decided on the reality and now you're just kind of watching it. Whereas if you're reading it, I think the way Wolf wrote it, you can't escape the sort of drama of indecision <laughs> because you have to choose you are pulled between good and evil good and evil are there in the world pulling you in different directions but you can't always tell what is actually there that to me is a much more sort of powerful statement maybe of what it means to actually experience free will in a fallen world i mean if we're going to start to go a little bit more catholic that's that's a powerful drama right there to say yeah i'm fallen i'm a finite creature i don't especially someone like this who doesn't have the church to help them with those guides. Well, those symbols may be there to help them, but as we talk about all the time, symbols are confusing and they're misread. And they're even while the truth is there, there's also falsity there and deception and all kinds of things. But it doesn't mean that Severian can ever get out of having to choose. That's cool. And that that's also really modernist, I feel like. Well, I think a lot of people are going to not like that. And I, and I fully appreciate why, you know, look, Gene Wolfe was not a moral cynic, right? He was a Christian man, a moral man. Yeah. This description of Wolfe's great work is just gonna feel wrong. Yeah, right. But the thing is, and this is kind of interesting from knowing that about Wolfe, at least I, I think, I think I know that about Wolfe from his works, that he was never someone who had a problem with putting the screws to whatever people commonly see as wrong. Yeah. As we've mentioned, he sort of, but not really, but sort of justified slavery of conquered people in ancient times. In An Evil Guest, he has this character, Gideon Chase, who tells an undisguised George W. Bush stand-in and his uh, Carl Rove advisor that what they call evil is just an assertion that something is contrary to their own interests, like saying bad dog when the puppy pees on the carpet. <laughs> he also says, too, there's that interview where he talks about, you know, Christ was a torturer as well. And that's in an interview. He's not, you know, he's playing games. Yeah, but he's also, thinking, yeah, it's a similar moment where he's switching things around that you assume he shouldn't 
be thinking, but <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's it's much like the torturers. They don't revel in torture. They're not supposed to. It's not supposed to mean something pleasurable to them. They're just supposed to do it. And that's kind of the dispassionate way Wolf puts us and our perception of morality on the table again and again and again. So the one place where I'll say that and now kind of say the opposite too at the same time, it's odd then that Wolf does write a book where Severian actually does grow, I think, and Severian does find a way to at least feel that he's redeemed himself. And then the structure of the whole narrative, especially once we get to Earth, I mean, he plays out the role of a kind of resurrection figure, the death and resurrection, both, right? I think it's inescapable to look at the end of the book and and congratulate yourself that you know that what Severian did is right or wrong. Because on the one hand, he has killed lots and lots of people by flooding the earth and destroyed it. He And he gives... And he gives the people that fight against him their due. Yeah. I see your point. From another perspective, what I'm doing is is monstrous and terrible. Yeah, yeah. But then at the same time, Wolf has written the world in such a way that Severian has also set humanity up to evolve into something better, right? I think that that's, that's also true. <laughs> you know, I like both of those things. It seems like they can't both be right, but they are, you know, so there is this weird story here where what he shows us is both a horrible tragedy and also salvation. And I don't know how to deal with that yet. <laughs> right? But I think that's really cool. I guess I still see a bunch of different ways that Severian can be a torturer who we're meant to sympathize with. And it shows that, you know, even someone as awful as a torturer can know that he's evil, but still find redemption and change his perspective. So there's still definitely growth in here. But that doesn't mean necessarily that it solves the ambiguities and the difficulties that he, he still remains human throughout the whole thing. And the, the circumstances that he's in are still a mess. So one other thing, just thinking about Shadow, I think the one thing that really hit home to me about the structure of the book that I had said before, but didn't really realize how much his relationships with women do structure Shadow. And I think that the Thecla to Asia to Dorcas relationships really are the key structure of the book. And I didn't really see that before. Like, But the first time you read it, you're sort of overwhelmed by this world and the questions and everything else. But if you read it more just with attention to what's actually going on in the scenes with Severian, so much of it really does have to do with his personal immediate reactions to these three women that Thecla dominates so much of that first part after you get the first few chapters of, as I've jokingly called the, you know, Harry Potter for tortures moments, then it becomes all Thecla. After that, it becomes all Asia. And we have talked about so much about how much Asia is setting up so many questions in this book and create so much of the drama of the book. But then Dorcas comes too. And I think that in a real sense for me reading at this time, what I realized was that his growth as a person has more to do with, with those relationships that Thecla is kind of uh, just a crush or just a sort of infatuation, almost even for like a kind of lost mother figure that he didn't have. And maybe there you've even got the mother, <laughs> you know, she shows up, you know, and I know we'll talk about that more, but you know, she's not absent from the very beginning. She may actually be there in the background, but then you have Thecla who I feel like kind of replaces that for him because he sees her as more mature, as more cultured, you know, all these 
she's better. And then you go to Asia, which is lust at first, but then more just kind of the infatuation of what is this other person doing? She's paying attention to me. I want to pay more attention to her. You know, it's not just lust, but it's also a kind of. Yeah, I know it. I know it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, honestly, it really is. But then Dorcas comes along and that's the first time where he actually tries to pay attention to the other person, not for what they can give him, but actually because they need something from him too, and he can provide it. And so that's why I feel like there is growth because you go from really a kind of childish relationship where all you can even talk about how the fact that he gets mad at Thecla for calling him a boy is all still focused on himself. Asia, he's starting to see this other woman as interesting, but it's not until Dorcas that I think he actually cares for somebody else. And that's growth. I mean, that's, that is a kind of growth story and it does structure what's going on there. But what I didn't realize was reading at this time, how prevalent that really was. As I look back on what we've talked about, that's what I remember now about those chapters are the girls and really how he's relating to them. So I actually have this in my head structured in a totally different way where I think I thought of it before, thought of Shadow much more like those set pieces and scenes of the garden and the initiation ceremony early on and of the the really mysterious stuff. But this time, I really think of it more in terms of the three of them as sort of three segments of the book. So speaking of characters, <laughs> should we? Yeah, let's talk about those characters. We can, we'll just go through them one by one and see what we think about these guys. Yeah. So I guess, you know, obviously we should start with Severian. Which one, James? Which Severian? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I'm working on something on that. <laughs> but I didn't know what to make of Severian when we started. Now I have some very keen ideas about his role in this book. I believe that he literally, and I'm sorry if you're sick of hearing this, I get it, but it's really the only way that ties this book together. So I'm going to touch on it just a little bit. I believe that Severian lives in the shadow of a torturer, the first Severian, a man from a previous universe. Previous is a problematic word since no chronology is universal, but from his perspective and therefore our Severians, it is a previous one. And that's something I've come to understand about this book as a novel. It is groundbreaking. The Fifth Head of Cerberus was too, a novel that exists somehow between the spaces of three novellas. And in this, we have a story about people living in the shadow of events of a life that changes everything that's never mentioned, but it does change their world. And it's somebody that they never actually see. He's everywhere and nowhere. What I like about that is it's the best explanation of the title <laughs> that I've heard. No, really, because I mean, we we talked about the point where when it comes up in the book, it's just the shadow on the the stone for the beheading and all the things that can mean. And that's good. But I like the idea that it's actually pointing to a much deeper story that's going on. And, and I'll say again, just for the record, I'm not 100% convinced that you know, what I think is your strong reading of First Severian is what's going on. But I do absolutely now think that our Severian isn't the only Severian. And I, I, I think that there are a bunch of ways that Wolf leaves open the possibility for different Severians to come through here, even if it's just grand cycles of the universe repeating or something like that. But and I know we're going to get to it later, but there's a, a bunch of ways that I think that that absolutely clarifies certainly weird plot things and make sense of what 
Wolf is doing with giving clues. So that's it. I know you're going to, we're going to talk more about First Severian, but I'm I'm not saying I disagree with it because I don't like it. It's more, you know, I'm open to being convinced. And as I said before, I really do want to work everywhere. And I've actually seen a ton. So I love that you're developing it in all those different ways. So yeah, just another point too, that you can disagree with, uh, with someone's strong take on, on this and still learn from it. Okay, well, we might as well just go right on to Malrubius then. Yeah, let's jump right in to First Severian here. I ha- now have a very specific idea about him, which I didn't before. I believe it is his body in Severian's mausoleum. I believe that he is the First Severian, to the extent that our Severian is the man who walks on the shore in the end of the Earth of the New Sun and looks at the Cemetery of the Gods. To the same extent, Malrubius, whom Severian remembers from childhood vaguely, that's the weird part about him. Severian has only the vaguest memory about him. He's unable to pin down the year he died, but Severian was at least old enough to be taught by him in torturer school. I think Severian's drowning vision of Malrubius looking for him, but he can't find him because he's on a table in the examination room. That's the first Severian looking for Thea. And that's how we know that the first Severian ate Thea in the same way that our Severian ate Thecla. That's the woman crying. And that's why Severian is tied to that examination table. Cool. So I think I alluded to this when we talked about Malrubius before when he shows up, but I didn't really develop it. But I I do have some other ideas about Malrubius actually being an aspect of the Hieroduels, not just like a tool, but how he may actually be part of Zadkiel or at least one of the other Hieroduels. And I'll leave that more for when we get to him later in Citadel. But so it seems pretty clear to me on a sort of plot level that they're, I mean, they say they're Eidolons created by that ship. Yes, that's absolutely true. Yes, there was a master Malrubius who died, who trained Severian. That Malrubius is the first Severian. There's an Equaster Malrubius, and that's an Equaster of Malrubius, who is the first Severian, a Severian from a previous universe. Oh, I see what you're saying. His body's in the, his body is in the ma- mausoleum. Gotcha. Okay, so... So what you're saying is it's the the actual Malrubius who lived before was first Severian, you think? Right. Yes. So then these other things are not also first Severian. They are they are the Eidolons that they say there. Okay, good. That that clarifies that. Okay, cool. Gotcha. But yeah, so that's just a hint for some weirdness that may be coming up later on when we see him again. All right. Chiturna. Chiturna. Chiturna the Undyne, who is she's not yet named in no. the Mm-mm. Out of the torture, but we know that her that's her name. Is she named in Citadel or is is it not until Earth that she actually gets a name? Yeah, Earth of the New Sun, the scene in the throne room. Right, right. I understand nothing new about her. She saves Severian or kills him. Severian at the end of Citadel the Autark believes that she saved him. She's a daughter of Abia, so to speak. Because of my interpretation of the first Severian theory, I don't think Abia or Erebus, if Erebus is still alive, care about trying to kill Severian. Have I discussed the fact that I don't, I'm not totally sure Erebus is alive? I'm that will come up in the tale of the student and his son. Okay. I don't know if they care about trying to kill Severian. I don't think they believe that it's possible. And we get a sense of that in Severian's conversation with Valeria and Bald Danders as Earth is flooding in Earth, the new sun. So, you know, 
What do they want from him? I, I don't know yet. There's that dream that he had in Baldander's bed. Some people believe it symbolically matches what ultimately happens in Severian's fight. I'm not satisfied with that. I think it almost happens, and I can rectify the events with a previous iteration in another universe, perhaps. But this still doesn't explain what the Undyne's game is in showing it to Severian, either that first time or if this dream is just a memory that's sparked by his close association with Baldanders. I, I don't know. but I don't know what their game is. Yeah, first Severian theory gives me some comfort in the direction we're going, but it's still an open puzzle in the book, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, she's hard. You know, everything about the Undines and Erebus and how they know about Severian plot-wise and, and why they're following him and how they would know about it is never clear to me. Whether or not they're working with or against Aniri, I don't know. The book keeps suggesting they're always just trying to work against the Hyrule's, I think, but... That may be a question too. The Autark seems to feel that that they are in some way. He says mm -hmm. to Severian, look, they would give me all of Asia if I would hand you to over to them. Right. Right. So there's that aspect of it. I I'm not any clearer yet, hopefully, on the plot point. But one thing that has changed about Juturna is I see her role, I guess symbolically, in a very different way now. Cause I so if you've been on Facebook. For a while, you know that there was some drama a little while back, but some of the stuff there actually made me think more about a psychoanalytic approach that not a lot of people have talked about. And usually I'm personally not big on psychoanalytic readings of things, but this time there may be something to it. One thing I wish you would have thought back then was when we talked about her was how much Juturna is really kind of like a surrogate mother for Severian. And it's, you know, we already talked about Thecla as possibly a surrogate mother. But, I mean, if you think about Juturna, she's a giant, watery woman, cradles Severian in her huge coffin-like hand, um, but then she throws him out into the world. I mean, that's, that's you're getting into sort of dark, weird mother imagery there, um, but it's, it's kind of cool. So she's like a caretaker, but she's also this dangerous temptress. Yeah, he calls himself a baby bird, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, I had forgotten. Yeah, that's right. That's right. The baby bird in the coffin-like hand. Yeah, that's, oh, that's even better. There's also that sort of temptress side, like the Undines kind of seem like sirens in the dream there. So we know he hasn't had a real mother, but now you've got this giantess woman who seems in some level to like love and protect him, but who's also terribly threatening because of her size and power of, you know, unmanning him or taking his power away, which we kind of get from the plot side. So there's this weird with Severian and the way that he's described every time she shows up and even in the dreams of like a weird attraction and repulsion at the same time. It's almost like a weird messed up relationship to a mother where he's resentful of her, but also totally wants to run and hide inside her. I'm not so sure. I haven't worked all this stuff out. And also trying to think along psychoanalytic lines is not necessarily my forte, but, but I'm starting to get all these images around the undines that I can't escape and all kinds of stuff early on in the book about mother figures too, that I have to think about. Um, Severian's memory problems. Well, you know, look for me, 
this is totally resolved by the first variant theory. It not only explains the errors in his memories, but the issues of him remembering when he remembered things differently, of believing that his memory is incorruptible, but he's not sure whether the things he remembers actually occur. Uh, yeah, the whole, to- whole thing is totally explained, which is going to be unsatisfactory to people who feel like, you know, it doesn't need explaining <laughs> that it's supposed to be weird and it's supposed to be unresolved. Yeah, I don't I don't feel like it's a big mystery anymore. And maybe that's just me. Maybe that's because I'm tired of talking about it because it always comes up. Like it's the one <laughs> thing that everybody has to bring up all the time. But no, I'm I'm with you that whether it's a first Severian or the fact that Severian can travel through time and that there might be ultra different Severians, to me, there's enough of that to suggest a plot reason that his memory is connected to there being different versions of him somehow. And I like it. It fits to me. So it, yeah. So plus I feel like everybody else talks about his memory all the time. So let's just say we've satisfied ourselves for the time and move on. (laughs) I think we have. The thing is, I now feel like I understand why he has a perfect memory. Yeah. And why he fails to remember stuff. And that's very comforting. So yeah. Yay. Yeah. And there's also just the thing about needing to remember all of this stuff and needing to remember all the different autarchs when you get to Earth for the test, that it seems like it's made for him that way. Drot. It's interesting that he never really became a character, considering how significant he is in the first chapter. Yeah. It's also one of those things where I wonder if he is playing a bigger role and we just (laughs) haven't spelled it out. Yeah. I don't know. Well, that's what Gene Wolf does to us, doesn't it? So it's really Rosha. I think now that Rosha is the autark spy that the autark mentions in Citadel of the autark, uh, Palamon might be as well. That's why Rosha takes Severian to house Azure. And that's why I think the autark is lying when he says in Citadel of the autark that he didn't know Thekla was at the tower. I just see no way to rectify his knowledge of what went on there and not knowing that Severian had been assigned duties to a very important exultant client from house absolute. So there, um, I don't, I don't like the idea of an unresolved lie that's never discovered, but in that case, I just think that's a lie. (laughs) Iada, Iada. Um, yeah, you wrote, you wrote a list of characters and you left Iada off the list. So why no love for Iada? (laughs) <laughs> I I did forget him, which is wrong because he is kind of significant. He's like another version of Severian, another way that Severian might have gone, right? He quits the, the guild and becomes a sailor and he, he runs away from the guild, which is kind of what Severian had always kind of wanted to do, but he just didn't have the guts, but he had a, did. And he becomes one of the gods, right? At the end of Earth. Yes. Isn't he one of the, he's yeah. one of the four. Right. Thea, doves. That's all I got to say. Violet eyes like Thecla <laughs> and doves. So I will say you have made me actually pay attention to Thea, whereas I don't think I did before. So <laughs> well done. Well done. Uh, she drove me batty. <laughs> so I'm glad I passed that on to someone. Hildegrin, I've really got no hard proof that he's a robot. Doesn't change anything that I know of, but he, you know, he could be. He's heavy. Right? He sinks into the muck. That's for sure. Well, that's what I think whenever I see a really fat man. I think that guy could <laughs> be a, a robot. robot. <laughs> he can hold all kinds of mechanics underneath that flesh. 
That's funny. I've got like all these ideas now, but yeah, they just haven't gotten things sized down yet. So all the robot androids, yeah, it would make Battlestar Galactica really different. Yeah. All the first human forms had to be giant fat guys. Oh yeah, there's hard science fiction for you. Yeah. <laughs> Vodalus and the scene in the Necropolis. Now there's a theory that I thought was bizarre when we started. Yeah, you know, it was one of our first Curiosities Earthuses, Earthi, <laughs> and I presented it because I thought it was interesting. I thought it was, you know, out there, but credible. Come on. And now I'm kind of softening to it. And and this has been true really since our chapter six discussion. Some people might be surprised at that, that the body they're digging up is Thecla and in some subjective way, Severian's mother. The scene is reminiscent of the beginning of Great Expectations, as Nigel noted, where Pip uh, is standing over the grave of, among others, his mother. And then he becomes enveloped into the gang of a criminal. So it, there's just all that thematic consistency there. Her hair and her clothes match Thecla's. Uh, Wolf goes to great extent to describe these things also, and this is a big one. Why is Thea there? How can this be true, though? A listener posits that Severian enters some kind of time bubble into the future, and that's the meaning of all that fog. So that would mean that when, where Severian encounters a trio, Severian is also at that moment locked up in the tower, not yet set out, since Thecla hasn't deteriorated yet. It, you know, it must be the very night after her suicide. And the only way they would know about this is because someone tipped them off, probably mm, the old Autark. So it's all part of some larger game. And in that case, Severian's lack of certainty that the event happened the night before doesn't even require a first Severian theory, even though I think it is part of it. But I don't think that the first Severian encountered Vodalus at this point. But by this theory, the event did not happen the night before. It won't happen for slightly over a year. It appeals to me on a lot of levels. It has problems for me as well, I admit. When we get to Severian's encounter with Vodalus, we'll address whether it can stand up to their specific conversation. Severian tells Hildegrin about their encounter in the Acropolis. I never forget a voice or anything else. You tried to brain me with your shovel. And then Hildegrin just walks away without confirming it. So is it possible that for Hildegrin, that event was only a couple weeks ago? One other thing, Severian had to recognize Hildegrin by his voice, but he knows everything about Thea's face right down to her violet eyes. And some will argue that, well, you know, he meets the Kaibit in the House Azure. True, but he says that it's possible the reason he was immediately taken with Thecla is her resemblance to Thea and her eyes. Anyway, so if that body was Thecla, Wolf is not playing fair. It's not as bad as Agilus is banned, but it's pretty intense. Yeah, I still just have questions about that. The The one thing that makes me think about that happening at a different time and then it being Thecla is just the fact that it's he's walking the path and gets lost and the the path in the graveyard seems weird just because that is exactly how time travel happens in other places. It, it, I feel like if, especially being the very first chapter, that he would have need to, I don't know, make it 
a bigger deal that he gets lost rather than one line. But I don't know. I don't know. But that that is the point that makes me think, oh, I've got a curiosity's earthus. Curiositas Earthus. I mean, someone may have actually mentioned this. What if the timeline that we assume is going on in this book, I'm, I, I carefully catalog the timeline, as people remember. What if that is totally off? What if every time Severian gets lost, he's actually being shunted in time in some way? <laughs> oh, wow. Then Michael Andre Giussi has a lot of work to update all the timelines that he's written in all his various things. <laughs> well, I mean, think about it. He's supposed to meet Talos that night, and instead he meets him a few days later on a night that he expects him. Maybe for Talos it was that night. Hmm. I don't know. Dang. That's some that's some deeply hidden hints that <laughs> Yeah, that you're just not going to get unless you really go back and do it. But I I don't know. I mean, yeah, that's the other thing about having done this so long now is now I feel like I've I've heard so many weird theories that I sometimes wonder, how do I know what's crazy and what's not anymore? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes sometimes I have a set theory that I understand, you know, something having to do typically, I guess, with the first variant theory. And then I say, no, no, this is actually textually based. You have to have led to this point, but I really have to work to remember exactly why it was <laughs> that I arrived at that in an organic fashion. Yeah. Talos. My biggest change about Talos is that he's working with a significant manipulator of Severian. His explanation for why he created a role for Severian is not credible. He knew where and when Severian would be arriving to take part in the play. He wasn't told about Dorcas, which means, you know, she's some kind of kink thrown into the plan. Maybe the idea was that Severian would resurrect Dorcas and then grandpa would say, oh, Dorcas, and they'd be reunited, <laughs> right? But he fully expects Severian to go with them to the house absolute. And he's surprised, therefore, when Severian says he's going back to the center of Nessus. I suspect that while Severian and Baldanders were sleeping in bed, Talos was out conferring with that manipulator. Who? Well, Severian has a long conversation with Equaster Malrubius. Talos says he never saw anyone when he Severian had that dream in the night after the play. Could that be a lie? I think it is. I think Talos is working with the Hyros, which doesn't necessarily mean the Hyros are calling the shots. I think this is the error of the Peter Wright school. It, it seems to me we do a lot of punching on Peter Wright here. Honestly, there's no scholarly shelf of Gene Wolfe literature that doesn't include his book. Yeah, it's really good. And honestly, Wright's doing a lot to, I think, support that idea of the more modernist approach that we were talking about before. He may come down a little harder on one way to interpret that, but he's really focused on that. Like, what is the reader's action, paying attention to how your expectations are manipulated or not? Yeah, I mean, for that side of things, he really is good on a lot of things. Absolutely. So speaking of Talos, we didn't bring that up before, that maybe like the reason he didn't see him at the campfire was because he had been working with him. And so he's like, no, 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 I didn't see that guy. <laughs> you know, but I do like that a lot. 
because with with Talos, um, I do definitely think that he's in on whatever manipulation of Severian is going on. So whether it's it's first Severian or Aenira or the Hyraduls or whatever, I feel like Talos has to be in on it. So I actually think that he knows like far more than he seems to, and then he's he's just not Baldander's servant. He may well have been created by Baldanders, but at this point, for whatever reason. You know, that may be his day job, but he's been enlisted into a whole lot more. And and to me, the biggest thing is just the fact that he appears with the coin at the end, to me, is almost like him telling Severian, I know your whole journey that you've been on from this thing from the very beginning. And that's and, and trying to make him pay attention to that as well, to something about that. But to me, that means that he knows far more. And, you know, the fact that he wrote the play, which has so much of the real story going on to me it it, i know mark had mentioned a couple times that you know it could just be that he's tapped into something about the world but to me it seems it it has to be more intentional like i i don't the, the idea that maybe he just picked up on some mythic resonances in the world or something like that and was able to translate it I don't know. It seems like it has to be more intentional that he's really telling the story of something that's going on. You know, I wish I could find some good way to tie Talos to Aniri, but I, I just don't know. So, you know, but maybe, who knows, maybe he's like Asapeko. Maybe he's you know, a robot made to hang out with important people and keep things moving in the right direction. So, I mean, Asapeko wears that mask, right? He wears the mask over his, whatever his robot face is. And Severian does say that Talos's face is like a stuffed fox, which is kind of like a mask, you know, like a dead face over whatever's going on inside. So maybe, you know, I don't know. Um, it's something to think about, especially when we read Sword and we see that when they come to visit, like that would, that's another place to look at Talos's reactions again. Yeah. Yeah. The connection of the mask wearing uh, heroes and Talos that is that is really something and asapego says that he's like the caretaker of the other two right like he he keeps the other ones going that's precisely what talos does for Baldanders. right maybe Baldanders is actually a maybe he's a fallen hyraduel hmm i don't know now now we're getting in totally <laughs> <different>. <laughs> uh, okay Baldanders. The only thing new I have about this guy is one, I think he's less politically involved than I used to think. And two, you know, that dream he has about the stalactites and stalagmites with the bloody arm on the path. I'm kind of convinced that's the Autark's cave. And I have, I'm afraid, a first variant theory about that dream. And it's the only satisfying explanation I have about that dream. And I used to think Severian and Baldanders were sharing each other's dreams. And now the problems with that explanation cannot stand up to a more solid one. Does my new understanding resolve any other big questions about Baldanders? No, but it does resolve that one. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I think... I think Baldi's really on his own path, which is some kind of like Promethean tragedy of hubris or something like that. And so, and it's also what Severian could become if he realized he was, you know, special or took the Artarchy and turned it into like his own private, whatever, became a tyrant or something. So, uh, but, you know, luckily he has that ingrained sense of duty that the torturers have given him. Yeah. You know, mortality becomes something of a theme when you think of Baldanders, mm-hmm. because Baldanders will outlive Severian, probably, right? Mm-hmm. He's working on immortality. We know that Severian will die. And 
he the the path he chooses for Earth is to die. Yeah. Whereas Baldanders is just going to live and live and live and live so that he can live. Yeah. And that does bring up one other thing about speaking of, of interpreting things too easily. One thing I don't like is the idea that, oh, yeah, Severian floods the earth and that's obviously a horrible thing. But I feel like when you look at it in the bigger picture, there's always the idea that what he's doing is helping it. Yes. renew itself. So death is actually something that leads to growth in the longer, not for an individual person necessarily, but uh, well, I guess it does kind of for a severian, <laughs> but, um, but you know, the idea, I mean, I mean, even within Christianity, your old self dies and the new self, right. I mean, the rebirth, right. Yeah. No, it, it, unless the seed dies, it can never grow. That's yeah. Very- so there's, there's definitely a more complicated way to read that than just being like, Oh yeah, severian's bad. Cause he does destroys the world it's like well the 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 book's more complicated yeah once again it's it's taking something that is just typically the set piece of evil the guy who wants to destroy the world and recontextualizing it as a heroic act rudison and rauchow i i don't think we've greatly recontextualized these guys in any fundamental way they're if they're mysterious before, they're mysterious now. If they're mundane before, they're mundane now. Yeah, the only thing I like that we dug up a curiosity that Raucho might actually be Syriaca's husband. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Around. I like that. I think it's cool, but I don't know if it's true. And once again, it's like Hildegrin being a robot. Doesn't change anything, mm-hmm. but... Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's not true for Alton. We both recontextualized Alton. In different ways. Yep. I see him as a representative that's class and exultant and therefore a revolutionary to the extent that he can be. And incidentally, the theory that Severian meets Vodalus and Hildegrin and Thea out of time is a problem with my theory that Ulton recently fed off the body that they pulled out of the necropolis. And yet that <laughs> theory still resonates with me. But So yeah, at the very least, it, you know, it gives Ulton more to do in the story and everybody wants that. Definitely. So I do want to go back now and with the suggestion somebody had of all the Borges ideas, I want to go back and think even more about what Borges might be doing in this story as the guy who's protecting all the other stories that are going on. I don't know. Well, we need to perhaps discuss more about uh, his stories, maybe to understand a little bit more about Borges. That would be fun. We need a place to house them yes. and a reason okay. for people to access them. <laughs> okay. Yes, master. <laughs> the Autark. I have grown much more accepting that the relationship of the Autark at House Azure makes sense. If Rosha is his spy and Severian is taken there just so the Autark can get a look at him, the House Azure, you know, it doesn't have to be open every night. It could be rarely open. And that's why Severian and Rosha are the only ones there when they get there. Yeah. I, I don't know why that never bothered me. I know that sticks in people's craw <laughs> a lot, but it always seems, I don't know if it just seems to fit with the weirdness of the world that, you know, the Autark is always doing strange things <laughs> and maybe, yeah, he runs this and it's a weird way he gets to gets his kicks, but also gets to have his fingers in what's going on in the Citadel or something. But it makes sense if, the only time it's open is when he wants it to be open. Mm-hmm. Whenever someone is slumming it down in the Echopraxia, he opens up House Azure and come on in. But most of the time, you know, 
whatever he's doing with the Kaibits, he, he's out at the House Azure or he's out at the wars. He's doing all the things that yeah. we assume he has to do. And maybe they've got mirrors so he can just teleport back and forth. Who knows? Yeah. The maid. The maid. If we're going to talk about the Autark, mm, then we should skip yes. directly to the maid in Severian's elevation ceremony. The one who played Holy Catherine with a K. Severian says that her face was like a clear pool of water, and I am convinced that that means it was like looking at his own reflection. Yeah, that was a great reading of that, that I had never thought of before, but I love it now that somebody brought that up. Yeah, and I'm pretty convinced that she is his mom. I think the reference to St. Gildas and to the St. Catherine legend confirms to me that she is using the tunnels to attend every one of Severian's elevation ceremonies in a single day. Are you as convinced? I love the idea. I absolutely love it, but I'm not. <laughs> Look out. Incoming. Yeah, I know. I think the, the one big plot thing that makes me not is because I think that the woman being hauled down the hallway in Earth when he, he just has that weird glimpse in the through the corridors, I think that's his mother. I I don't know who else that would be. And it just so makes so much sense that his mother would be being hauled away. But then if she's being hauled away, I can't imagine that they then struck a deal. It's like, okay, play nice. And every day we're going to have you come out here. I don't know. I don't know. But it, it just didn't feel right. But I, I do love the idea. I mean, it's so, I love it for the same reason that I love the old man coming every day to look for his dead Dorcas floating around and missing her. It's just so sad. <laughs> but Well, I am I like compelled it. by the idea that the Contessa is Catherine. Very much so. But I'm not compelled by any of the stories mm -hmm. about why she he finds her in this peculiar location. Um, I have to wonder why he doesn't recognize her at all. And there's just a lot of things that Mm -hmm. don't fit. I think I think the connection is right, but I don't think that the context has been properly established yet. So you can still append that to this. Let's think about it. Uh, furthermore, I think the conspiracy theory that the Autark is a woman in disguise, as well as certain elements in the St. Catherine legend, strongly confirms for me that the Autark generally fell in love with her. And after her excruciation, he ate her. The first Severian theory explains who motivated her to take part in the Severian. My particular flavor of the theory is that Master Malrubius came. He says, you know, he can't save her from her fate, but he goes to her and he offers her a chance to see her son grow up. I also presume that the reason Holy Catherine, with a K, is the patron of the Guild of the Seekers of Truth and Penitence is due to the, the manipulation, the, the first Severian's manipulation that he made his mother the uh, the patron of his guild. And, you know, perhaps that's how all the guilds began having celestial patrons. It just seems like an incredible coincidence that Severian's mother has the same name as the Madachin Tower patron. Yeah, and I definitely see that. But overall, I think that it's just got so many ifs stacked on top of each other i mean i like it this is what i do oh i know well i mean in some ways this one just this one goes <laughs> goes further in that direction because i think in a lot of other mm -hmm. ones you've got good textual things for this this one i mean i admit i just don't know i feel like there's so much stuff that goes on in the book that suggests that she's his mom but that makes me have so many questions you know like 
by the way, they explain how kids come. Why wasn't she then killed when she's brought? Oh, you mean not immediately? Not immediately. Or why is Severian given to them if she's still alive, especially if they you know, like keep her around long enough to see him? But, but they don't keep her around, right? Yeah, I know. She probably isn't even showing yet. And she's, you know, sitting in the tower for a year. And yeah. guess what? You're not showing yet, but you're going to have a son and, and a daughter. I don't know what the deal he would have cut with her about her daughter that was apparently born. But yeah. this is one day in all the, that event. No, I know. I think the, the big thing, though, is that in order to do that, it turns the time travel and the quarters of time into a tool that they can manipulate with a ton of specificity for such a, a small little thing. But that's like a super massive power. And anytime Severian uses it, there's always some confusion or, you know, he's never quite sure exactly what he's doing with it. So I don't know. It just uses that, that weird magic technology tool in a way that I don't see it get used anywhere else. Maybe by the green man. I mean, the green man seems like he can pick out parts of time really well to show up, <clears throat> but never anyone else, never like just the, the torturers or in area or, or someone. I don't know. That, that's well, I mean, Severian, when he does it, he doesn't know anything about him. So he's just, he's like a kid in, uh, in his parents' car or something like that. Maybe so. Maybe so. It just, there's, there's a, there's a ton more questions. I mean, if you tally up the things that it answers and the questions it creates, it, for me, it creates way more questions than answers. Agia and Agalus and Hathor. I've got nothing new to say about these people at this time. We've said a lot. I'm confounded by them. They're important in ways that I don't know why. And I'm afraid I'll never know emphatically why. I don't know. I'm, I'm confident that we're going to learn more about Heather this time. We must. So everybody liked him so much, and I really do like Heather. We will figure out more things about Heather as time goes on. Because I, I feel like I, I have some more clear possibilities for him as I'm reading this time. So we'll Okay. Go. I'm on your trail, Heather. <laughs> all right. That's all the major characters, I think. We, I'm sure we missed out some little ones. But, but one thing I want to go back to, too, is the line from the very first paragraph. The locked and rusted gate that stood before us with wisps of river fog threading its spikes like the mountain paths remains in my mind now as the symbol of my exile. When he talks about exile at the beginning of this, what is he actually talking about? I think the, the obvious plot idea there is his just exile from the guild. That, you know, he's going to commit a crime and be pushed out. But that actually in the end kind of becomes something he's happy with, right? That he's decides, no, it was a good thing. I learned more about why we need to get rid of the tortures, learn more about the world. So then exile isn't just exile from Gil, but he's still, in other words, part of my point is that I don't know that when he's writing this, he would actually feel like it was exile anymore. So then why is he still using that word? In other words, is there something else that he's still talking about how this gate is still to him a symbol, not of just, not of just getting kicked out of the guild from the beginning, but that after he has all of his adventures that he feels some bigger exile. Like he still feels like seeing this gate, a locked gate and having river frog sort of confusing it and making it hard to see that that's a symbol of his exile, not just of the guild, but of disconnection from something else. And I don't know. I mean, I have ideas for what we could say their shadow by itself doesn't necessarily give you a much larger picture of the kinds of, you know, conclusions that Severian 
feels about his whole adventures or what, but just the fact that you end with that little conversation with Malrubius where it's kind of getting Severian to think for a minute about, okay, what's your relationship to God and that there are higher and lower levels of what that relationship could be. And is there something in exile that he's still dealing with too? In other words, is he still, is exile a way that Severian feels from a more religious or metaphysical position that even after everything he's gone through, he still feels a little bit like he's locked out of really understanding something. It's a lot to push, I know, right there, but it's just that looking back at sort of how the beginnings and the ending of this book, this one book, uh, seem, I just don't feel like exile. I don't feel like he's just talking about the guild anymore. Like I feel like first part, he's talking about something bigger too, but but I don't know that it's ever entirely explained in New Sun exactly how Severian would feel about his relationship to the Increate or something like that. I don't know. We got to work on that because I've got ideas, but I'm not sure that the text really spells them out entirely. And I just still feel like there's a lot that Severian goes through where he's still, even if he does understand that he's supposed to be the new son, that he still just doesn't really understand why in some pretty deep senses. And so there's still, even, even as he gets pulled into this huge world changing moment and he becomes the symbol that he still is confused about it and doesn't quite really get why. And so exile is still a pretty good word for that. Plus exile, exile is just a good, it's a good religious word too. I mean, Exodus and, and the people being pushed out of their homeland and, and all this kind of stuff. It's, it's an, it's an overloaded word that it just seems to me like it's got to mean a little bit more than just getting kicked out of the guild. So is it your understanding that he's, when he says exile, he's not just talking about leaving, leaving the guild, that he's talking about being exiled from something else? I think so. At least that's kind of how I feel now, that, that it's got to mean more than just the guild. But, you know, I don't think shadow, shadow doesn't spell it out. And I don't think it's even something that's really spelled out until after earth is done too. But yeah, it's. Mm. Well, I mean, he is, he passes through a gate when he leaves Nessus, which could also be part of his exile on the issue of why it would be a symbol. I, as everyone Knows, of course, I think Severian is being manipulated by himself, by the first Severian himself from a previous universe, became the conciliator, the head of the day in Malrubius. But I think there's a common belief that the only reason for doing this was to make our Severian a better person. And I propose that the reason he is manipulating him himself is not that at all. He has injected an event into the life of our Severian that I think did not occur in first Severian's own life. And that event is that he met Vodalus this early before leaving the Citadel. And this has been a minor problem because it's not clear to me why this significant change needed to occur or why it would occur without manipulation. And it leads to the question of why anyone would engineer this change. So I think I might have a reason for that. And it is not to make Severian a better person. 
It is because that the changes that First Severian has already made to our Severian's timeline, the conciliator, the new sun religion, perhaps even the head of the day, it has made this Severian, our Severian, something of a putz, <laughs> a follower, someone more inclined to obey authority. Severian said that if he had been a character in the Brown book, like in the stories that he and Thecla had read, he'd have drugged the guards and broken her out. Well, I propose that those stories are largely about the first Severian, that many of the stories that he is reading in that book are about the first Severian. And that is exactly what the first Severian did for Thea. He did attempt to break her out, only to discover that the orders for her excruciation had been scheduled for that very day. And that is the meaning of Severian's drowning vision, where Malrubius is looking for him, but he's down in the examination room on a table. Our Severian could not bring himself to do that. He could not choose to abandon the guild. And the only reason he says that he ultimately helped Thecla to die was that little bit of nudge he got from his meeting with Vodalus, where he got the coin. And so I think that is the reason why this gate was the doorway as well as the symbol to his exile. That's pretty interesting. That, Yeah, it... It changes a whole lot about, like, if that's the case, then it, it, there's a whole lot of weight on how the motivations of, you know, first Severian and our Severian would be. And that's, that's quite an intricate puzzle. <laughs> I mean, that stuff is, <laughs> that would be deeply hidden. Um, it's kind of more interesting too. I mean, it's the whole thing about, you know, first Severian making Severian a better person in order to do it, that just seems more logical, but yeah, there's nothing necessary about it. And yeah, I like it. It gives a nicer sort of reason for why Severian is, you know, never quite that good <laughs> and why he's, he's never, you know, like you said, he's a putz in a lot of ways. And it kind of gives an extra layer of drama. That that's not just Wolf saying, yeah, sometimes, sometimes the savior of the earth, it just happens to be a putz. No, it's actually like, no, that is kind of a problem. And it's sort of an interesting backstory for how that happens. That's interesting. Okay. Hmm. Different sense of exile, definitely, because their exile would be much more, well, this Severian wouldn't even really know. <laughs> like, right, our yeah. Severian wouldn't even really understand what he's being exiled from in that right. sense. It would just be all the first Severian. Hmm. I just, yeah, I like that because it seems with the first Severian story, it, it's just a little more honest about Severian's character and, and how he actually does become. Because otherwise, yeah, first Severian doesn't necessarily make Severian all that much better. I mean, he's still, Severian's still the kind of simple-minded dude. No, no. He's yeah. he's doing it all for himself, right? He just wants to see his mom or dad happy. He wants to see the dog, but mm. he's kind of selfish. Yeah. But it does give him something to <laughs> cool. do. All right. I put out a request for any uh, listeners who had changed their minds about something in these books over the last year and a third or maybe just a change of focus. Certainly I've changed my mind about a lot of stuff. I continue to, and I'm constantly recontextualizing the plot. Anyway, we got some interesting replies, Craig. 
some people just ping to say, I'm still catching up. Well, <laughs> which is fine. You can make comments as well. You know, well after you can make comments well after the fact. We might have already been corrected by listeners or in many cases, one or both of us might have changed our minds about what we thought earlier, but that's okay. Stuart Ham is a lot more interested every time mists appear now. He's not buying that they have to do with time travel. He figures Wolf is just setting a mood, but he's taken that when they appear, something big is going to happen. Yeah, that's cool. I still do too. Definitely. I'm, I like the time travel thing. Like I, when we first talked about it, I was kind of like, eh, it seems like overreading. But the more I see the times that that happens, the the more likely it seems. And it definitely becomes something that Wolf is doing intentionally to signal something. And and yeah, so I'm I'm definitely with him on that part. Yeah, it's a little scary, though, about what it means to the plot because I don't mm-hmm. know what to yeah. do with it. But yep. I yep. get it. Alston Jakubiak said... I never made the Thecla equals the claw connection. So many little fun theories abound, and I'm looking forward to more Hathor theory spinning. Well, I'm here for you, man. Don't worry. <laughs> I'm with you too. I don't I don't think I remember that actually. And I remember you the first time you brought it up, I think we were talking about something and you were like, Yeah, and you know the whole like Thecla the claw thing. And I was I still remember <laughs> being like Wait, wait, oh, what? that was, oh. yeah, that was Mantis. He's <laughs> I don't think we recorded email. that. And it's, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, maybe not. Maybe it was, maybe I had related what he said to you. And yeah, was, yeah. Man. And I got to say, you know, same thing that he mentioned, hey, Thor, Thecla, the claw. The same is true for me on both counts. Thecla's name association actually, Craig, indirectly helped me come to an understanding of Thea's Doves Association, the Holy Spirit, Mm -hmm. Doves. Wait, why is it Thea? And obviously, based on our discussion, Hathor, the thorn, has a lot of promise, I think. Also, thanks to listener comments, I'm finally satisfied with the purpose of Wolf's naming of the Madachin Tower. That, you know, yes, Madachin refers to the conquest dance, the sword dance, but it also means butcher or even bully. And the varying meanings reflect the way people see the tower as opposed to the way the Mm -hmm. occupants see it. Yeah, definitely. That was one I was proud. I remember we actually went back and added to that part (laughs) because people sent us comments too afterwards when we were like, oh, yeah. And we were like, oh, now we got to go back and not sound like idiots. (laughs) So we went in and and if there was if there was one place I think we cheated in this whole first book, I think that might be the one place. We were like, oh, let's go back and let's redo some things. Because now I think a lot a lot more things make sense. I think if we cheated, that would be the one place yeah. that we did. That was our opportunity to cheat. But then we blew it by telling everyone. <laughs> Duncan McGregor is kind of like you, Craig, about the Atrium of Time. He said, I had missed the idea that the Atrium of Time might be in a different time to Severians. I'm not sure I'm entirely convinced, but I like the idea. I also like some of the more out there KC Catherine theories, but I'm not sure I'm convinced. Finally, a close reading of chapter two also suggests to me that Severian may not have died, but certainly came adrift in time so that he could believe himself in a lower cell and hearing Thecla's crying. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. And that part, I admit, I still go back and forth on. Like, do I think he died? Do I think he got close? Yeah, I still waver. Yeah. And, you know, First Severian gives us an opportunity to have both worlds if we want. Mm-hmm. 
Jack Redelf, he, you know, he should really start a Christmas theme podcast. <laughs> anyway, he says he used to see the heroes and their plans as indifferent to the well-being of humanity. He says, I couldn't quite accept that Wolf was wholeheartedly in favor of flooding Earth. I believe, probably due to wishful thinking, that Wolf was deliberately ambiguous about whether it was worth destroying everything to bring the new sun. After this season of the show, I'm quite sure that Wolf conceived of the flooding of Earth as completely, unambiguously necessary thing for humanity. The heroes may be a bit weird and enigmatic, but their program is basically right. That's very icky to me, but like it or not, that's probably what Wolf was going for. The callous logic of the Old Testament. Which is another way of saying he's become less paranoid about the text. Yeah. and definitely. I concur with that. So I don't know if I'm to that point yet. Uh, I know I always lean more in the direction of Wolf thinking that, yeah, it was necessary, but I don't think he is unambiguously sort of saying that it has to be a good thing, even if the pan creator or the increate, or even if the increate in this situation seems to want it because Severian actually in, in earth, he goes through a lot of trouble with this like there there's a part where he i i feel like what's going on in earth he's realizing what this means and is really wondering whether or not he's going to do the right thing is the whole part where he goes under the water and and has his sort of weird wandering moment um i feel like that sort of severian kind of coming to terms with what the heck's going on here mm -hmm. and wolf wasn't unaware of this being you know harsh and a hard thing uh, right. Even if sometimes I feel like the characters are are like, oh yes, we must bring the new sun, and oh if that happens to destroy all the world, eh, so be it. It'll <laughs> it'll be good for everybody. And, and, yeah, I mean he's never quite that callous about it. Even if it may be that he's presenting the gods here or powers whatever as seeming maybe some way. But I don't know. I think I know what he's talking about in terms of like how we've kind of maybe articulated certain things. Mm -hmm. But yeah, when we actually get to that point. I I feel like a lot of the confusion and the difficulty is there in the story too and in the characters. But that's that's years away. <laughs> yeah. And Wolf is going to give the mutineering uh, sailors their due. That, yeah, yeah, from another perspective, he's a monster. Sure. Mm -hmm. Jack also has an opinion about the first Severian theory that some people around here seem to make so much of. He says that he has no problem with the existence of the first Severian, but he doesn't think he interferes or affects the story in the Book of the New Sun. He thinks it's just Wolf puckishly adding a little more angle to the story. He says, go away, first Severian. He wants first Severian <laughs> to leave the New Sun story alone. Well, I mean, technically he doesn't show up for another three books. Yeah. As far as like right there in the text. So yeah, you know, I mean, there, yeah, that's, it's sort of funny how that's become the, in some ways, I think the real, at least theory wise, like the main thing that, that we talk about. Yeah. Um, well, that's know, my fault, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, I think it's good. Cause it's even when I, the parts I don't agree with what I do appreciate about it is that you're trying to put together one overarching coherent theory like yeah. it's not like it the difference is that a lot of times when people come up with ideas it's like oh yeah i think this is this weird thing but they don't take the trouble to really tie how that would actually fit all the other things together but what you're doing with first severian really is trying to say okay if i take this let me see if there really is a way 
to tell the whole story mm-hmm. with with that there and you know you're finding things that are opening my eyes and make them see it in a different way so yeah even if i still lean against a softer way i'm i keep learning things from it so yeah so so that's why i think it's it's different from what people will complain about theory spinning because i feel like sometimes you know maybe this is the borsky problem of just like coming up with something but never really following through the logic of well how would that affect everything else but that you're trying to do that and that that's a totally different exercise yeah well keith adams is unmoved quote unquote by the first variant theory but he finds himself of more than one mind he definitely does think something is up with agia and agilis whatever it is also he's not dismissing the first severian theory as unworthy he says quote if it's just a puzzle box theory that fits the text but doesn't add any artistic thematic resonance what is the point and while i'm still chewing on it i think the first severian theory passes that test after a year of hearing about it in a way it didn't when i first heard it and a lot of wolf theories funked this test oh yeah keith i i think John Crowley said in the bonus episode, I'll try again. Uh, Yeah, Keith, I think what John Crowley said in the bonus episode applies here for me. If the perspective on myth and Hamlet's mill is wrong, it's definitely something like that. And I think the first variant theory is that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. On the other hand, other people are slightly more favorably disposed to the theory. No one as much as me, no one could be. Timothy Moore likes it a lot, though. He says, did not fully understand or believe in the first Severian theory, but after your discussion have changed my mind. You're making converts. (laughs) Yeah. Soon there will be those more zealous than you. Will be an army. (laughs) And I certainly agree with him. Challenging in some new ways, but resolvable in others. Um, That's how I see it anyway. But Mike Benowitz, creator of the Rereading Wolf logo, said, I had completely written everything Severian says about the first Severian as his total misapprehension, which I think means that he thinks differently now. I think I'll interpret it that way. John Muller says the idea that Severian's faulty memory is actually first and second Severian memory collisions works quite well. And now I trust Severian much more rather than wonder what he's trying to obfuscate. They uh, right there. That's a benefit for me. And it, what, and mm-hmm. once again, makes you a little less paranoid about the text. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't you tell me that you found some old wolf po- or earthless post that I made me thinking <laughs> yeah. that Severian was just wrong about the perfect memory or something? Yeah. Right. Exactly. Which, which, which is one of the, probably a seed that early on in this, uh, this podcast where I was wondering, okay, either he, has a perfect memory and there's some explanation of this, or he doesn't have one and thinks he has one. And that mm. is something I've why, what is the point of that? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. I still haven't gone back and read what I said, but I was like, that, that is like the third option, I suppose, of between mm. he's, he has a perfect memory or he's lying. Yeah. Or yeah, he thinks he does, but doesn't. It's the uh, liar, lunatic, or real thing. Yeah. Dichotomy of uh, C.S. Lewis. I guess posted that in Mirror yeah. Christianity. And yeah, the new interpretation of the book makes me less paranoid in general. Some people (laughs) might be surprised that I'm less paranoid given how quick I am to create conspiracy theories, but I was, you know, much worse (laughs) 16 months ago. Jason Cassidy is also 
a little more disposed to the theory. He says, first Severian was such a fun playground here and on the Reddit post, and I'm leaning more and more toward it. Also, while it seems such a small thing, I never realized the fact that the majority of the book takes place in under a week. That Severian is a busy man. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That I knew it was a short time, but it, I hadn't actually looked at a timeline or tried to figure one out till, right. till you, you actually mapped it out by day. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was probably obvious from my episode summaries that I'm awed by how much action in this book is packed, not just into a week, but into a single day. Oh, we're yeah. talking about claw of the conciliator already. And, you know, it's remarkable to me again, how yeah. many chapters into the book represent the first day of the volume. Philip Bonner was impacted by something other people might think is kind of a small thing. He says, quote, two and a half decades of obsessing about this book, and it was right under my nose. But it was your show that brought to my attention that Severian gives Agia a coin the way Vodalus gave him one. Whoa. Uh, yeah, that was a good one. I like that. Uh, for Mike uh, Farrar, his big change of mind is about Hathor. He says, I'm now with one foot in two camps. He's Zadkiel or a failed Severian or first Severian. Zadkiel says he walked with the conciliator in a previous creation. And we see in Earth of the New Sun, she wears different various disguises. Light ball in the sail of port, beats in the hole, beats in the hold, man beast, false epitome, angel, giant butterfly, etc. On broken, fallen earth, it might make sense that he or she is a broken or fallen figure and serves Severian. Yeah, cool. Hmm. Late Show of Amber replied to Mike Ferrar's comment. Which, that, by the way, I just got to say, I only just now realized Late of Amber is a uh, wolf in Zelazny's yeah. name. So <laughs> no, I hope that's what you're going for. I'm not sure, but I. It might I be a Spielberg reference. I don't know. It's <laughs> Late in Amber. So. But anyway, he replied to Mike Farrar's comment that, quote, I'd agree if I weren't already convinced that Haythor is Father Aniri. Although this doesn't necessarily exclude Haythor also being Zadkiel in the way that little Zadkiel by the brook is Zadkiel. And Mike affirmed the possibility. He says, there are so many similarities there, small and bent, liking young girls, monster callers, and so on. Later of Amber also said, I maybe could be convinced that Agia and Agalus are androids or otherwise artificial, like whatever Jonas is. And I'd never noticed the real specific description of Agia's face before, but I hadn't realized he was quite possibly describing a girl with Korean East Asian characteristics, which you guys make clear to me. Uh, yeah. Um, personally, I've actually moved away from the theory that Agia and Agalus are artificial or that Agia could be Hathor's sex doll. Still, it's peculiar. I still don't know what's going on with them, and I'm hoping I'll have an epiphany upon a close reading of the play at House Absolute. Uh, additionally, uh, I'll avoid spoiling it here on the spoiler podcast, but I'm actually moving away from the idea that the features are Asian. Uh, more on that in about six weeks. I, I'll be interested in what Lecher of Amber thinks about that. Yeah. And I don't know either. I just, I remember thinking it was a really interesting possibility and I probably wouldn't have followed up on that if it weren't for 
um, the pilot from the antechamber that if we didn't have specifically a Korean character at one point, I wouldn't necessarily have seen the description mm-hmm. as Asian. But since since Wolf brings it in, then that's where you kind of start wondering if there are other examples. Yeah. So, yeah, we'll see. We'll get some more Asia description here in, of course, Claw and we'll yeah see what right. I think. Uh, finally, Sam Sanders said his biggest reveal recently is that Hathor is Kypris from the Book of the Long Sun. I initially took this to be a bit of, you know, poking fun at us. Uh, the irony of this sort of audience is famous for perhaps even a little teasing. Yeah, I'm sitting here. Did we say that? Did you say that? <laughs> I didn't say that. Yeah, but maybe I figured, you know, he's just teasing us at, you know, some of the theories I've spun here and also on the Earth list <laughs> regarding the Book of the Long Sun. But no. I had underestimated how twisty these books can be. He says, in the long sun, Silk has a dream where he's whipping a lagging horse with another into a golden dust of suns. It's quite a beautiful passage. He also looks at the person sitting next to him who is possessed by Kypris, the goddess of love. Hathor is the Egyptian analog of this, like Charon. And in this little bit with Silk, Orpine is writhing in the back in the dead coach. I think Hathor is Kypris. Okay. Yeah, I'm just trying to think. Oh, yeah, because the, the trick <laughs> is that Longson hadn't been worked out yet at this yes. point, I don't think. And well, he might have uh, had even, even the whole summoning thing. I just, I, that's where I get tricky. It's like how, because I just don't know how much Wolf had worked out. Yeah, about the I, what was well, going on. But you have to consider that, how much. You have to consider how much Wolf might have worked out about Typhon's family. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And possession can work. And I mean, we've seen all kinds of possession in Wolf stories. I mean, even right. different types of possession in the same work. So, yeah. Yeah. I don't you know. Never I know. mean, the way selfhood works in Short Sun. Um, right. It's it's obviously something. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> well, Tom Ryan's perspective on Severian has taken a dark turn in his recent rereading along with us. He says, I've always harbored some nagging doubts regarding viewing Severian as a hero who brings the new sun and the renewal of earth. And I believe that we have, (laughs) I believe that we have been misdirected by Wolf or Severian. I believe that Severian has a dark secret underpinning his entire story, much like Alden Weir. We know this secret because of earth, of the new sun, and yet we have not recognized it as the primary character theme of the story. I contest that the book of the new sun is the autobiography of the angel of death. We know that Severian is responsible for exterminating all or almost all human life on earth, perhaps billions of people dead through his volition. Severian's true role, unstated but supported by the text, is that as the increates angel of death tasked with eliminating humanity's irredeemable perdition from earth. I believe that Wolf utilized the same basic narrative template in book of the new sun as he did in peace, an unreliable first person account reliant on self-serving memories and deconstructed mythology used to tell the story while hiding the true nature and motivations of the protagonists. I mean, Craig, Based on what I've already said, I, I sort of agree with this, although I seem to put a slightly different color on it. Yeah, there are lots of ways I can see that playing out that could definitely make some sense. And 
I'm, I may not quite be to that point yet, but there are definitely some, like when I'm in a worse mood about Severian. Um, yeah. I mean, as a, you know, a, if you can figure out how, and there are certainly plenty of precedents for how a, a figure of death is actually part of a larger story that, mm -hmm. that isn't just like evil. Yeah. I mean, I, he's not satanic in that sense of death, um, but he's could definitely be sort of cyclical death. The, yeah. Like the, yeah. The, the necessary force of death in the universe or something like that. Yeah. Well, well, Tom believes that the Undines want Severian to be their antichrist. And he frames the entire book of the new sun story as a science fiction fantasy retelling of the end of the book of revelations. A long mm. time in the past, there was a rapture. All of earth's elect left the cosmos. And this is another example. He says of Wolf combining religious dogma with science fiction mechanics. So, you know, Earth is now irreparably mired down in the sin and degradation of those left behind, those irredeemables. They've lost the ability to reachieve the stars or good graces of the incarnate. The autarky was established to bring final reconciliation for the problem of human sin by grooming one that would accept the role of the angel of death and put an end to it all. And Severian accepts that role. And this is his story. You know, I kind of like that, <laughs> you know, something about it. I, you yeah, know, there's, you there's would. a lot of, there's a lot of something there that, that I'm going to, I'm going to bookmark that and I'm going to mm -hmm. come back to that. And that's, that's going in my, that's going in my, my quick notes file here to make sure I think about that. one. <laughs> well, I think a lot Thank of you for that. Yeah. I think a lot of the themes are right. Although, um, Wolf was a Catholic and not a dispensational evangelical Christian. And right. the Catholics have a very different reading on the book of Revelation. Uh, no rapture. That's true. That That is true. But at the same time, you know, it is fiction. And so he could have been playing with certain ideas. Yeah. And yeah I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Long and short sun make that more complicated, though. I think, yeah. but. but I hope Tom puts the whole thing on a website or a Reddit so everyone can see it. It's cool. Yeah. But yeah, thank you guys for letting us know. Um, it's fun to... It's fun and just honestly gratifying just to see people talk about, you know, not just, it's always cool to have people say, yeah, that, thanks a lot. I really like what you do. It's even cooler to get the details of like, well, mm -hmm. here's what I'm thinking now. And and here's what, you know, you said right. this and not just that we convinced you of something, but you know, where you are with some of your own ideas. That's just really cool. Um, yeah. Thanks. That's fun. Well, so we set up our questions for what we wanted for the whole reading. I was thinking about questions I have going for just claw this time too, is we, so this is kind of my setup for, for myself, for Claw, like some things I want to pay attention to. And I talked about how I really felt like one big thing that actually made this reading more satisfying for me was the structure of the three women. And so I'm kind of curious for Claw, what are the structures that anchor Claw for me? Shadow has a clear sort of trajectory and Wolf even points out the thing at the end of you come from gate to gate. There's all kinds of ways that Shadow is this contained little story, but it's still got a single direction. And so it's not exactly a quest story, but it feels very on the rails a lot of the times, even though you get some weird things. But Claw, I mean, Claw and Sword both are much more picaresque. That, yes, yeah, Severian has a goal to get to Thrax, but they're all detours all the way. And things start happening all over the place that he kind of gets caught up in. And he's never really in control of where he's going apart from vaguely moving towards Thrax. So, and Picaresque, by the way, is an old, it's an adventure story, but it's where there's no overarching 
story. It's just, you kind of go from adventure to adventure. Like the old, um, ah, and they, they flew out of my head the minute I was going to say it. Fritz Lieber's guys. What are, what are Fritz Lieber's? Fafner and the Grey Mouse. Yeah, it's like the Fafner and the Grey Mouser stories. Like they collect all those into books and sometimes they even call them novels and whatnot, but they're really not. It's just a whole bunch of series of short stories. So that's, that's picaresque. So yeah, that's what I really want to pay attention to is what's the structure of Claw? Like, is there something about it that makes it a book? I want to look and see Asia, if she plays a bigger role than I've noticed before. Is it more about Severian and guilt for having a claw, wanting to find this, the Pelerines? Is it something about Dorcas? I mean, yeah, of course he's trying to get to Thrax, but even as we're going through this, the basic physical travel is strange. Like it's, if you think about Shadow, it's all sort of in one direction. But in Claw, there's a lot of back and forth because he's like, he's first he's in Saltus, then he goes to the mine, then he's back to Saltus, then he sees Vodalus, then accidentally goes to the house. Absolutely. Like it's all this weird zigzaggy line. So there's no clear path. So I just want to see if there's something about Claw that makes it cohesive in the same way that I feel like Shadow kind of got a little more cohesive. Well, should I spoil my understanding of the structure? Why not? We spoil everything else. Another curiosity earth this as well. He starts in Saltus. And who does he find there? He finds a man who's being buried alive. Mm-hmm. And he has to resurrect him. And then at the end, he goes to the stone town and he finds a man who's been buried alive. So the same sense starts, ends just like gate to gate, stone town, stone town, man buried alive, man buried alive. Yeah. And it makes me wonder, we never find out exactly where that stone town is. Could it be Saltus? You know, is there some connection? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it makes sense. Interesting. Like a weird circle, a cyclical kind of thing. Huh. As often as this is called a picaresque novel, I think that I really, really feel like it's masquerading as a picaresque mm-hmm. novel. And I do believe that it is highly structurally defined in a way that I don't necessarily understand. It's like walking in a big, dark cathedral and you can see the columns going up into darkness and you can't see them touch and meet, but somehow you know they are because that's the way this cathedral seems to have been built. It's kind of like that. Interesting. Well, that's cool because that's also something I was trying to think about with Shadow because Wolf and Severian both stress going from gate to gate. But I was trying to think there's got to be more about the different chapters. And we didn't talk about that when we talked about the last chapter so much. But, yeah, you know, so I was trying to think, are there important things about each chapter that we don't see, you know, so in chapter one, Severian says Vodalus. And in the last chapter, Heather probably, as we talked about, has set something loose to kill Severian. But does someone save Severian who we don't see? You know, is there a saving idea? Just like Severian saves Vodalus and sets things off. Hello, Hathor. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Or maybe first Severian does. I don't know. The, the theories that Hathor has released a creature at the front and is causing all of this havoc. It, that he's doing it to kill Severian, to assassinate Severian. Well, we don't really know that. <laughs> we, don't, we know so little about what he's done. We know less about what his specific plan was in that. Maybe there was someone else out there at the front of those gates planning to kill Severian. Oh, yeah. That's the other thing, by the way, that I feel like, as far as just traditional puzzles that go with this book, 
figuring out for me that everything points to Heather having set something loose and causing the chaos there. That was really cool. That was one of those moments like, ah, that was satisfying. (laughs) That was so good. Viewing it as a structural problem for me, very interesting to me, the way Wolf set it up, the conversation, I don't want to rehash it, go back and listen, but that it's called Hathor. Hathor appears at the beginning. He's not at the end. Usually the named thing is at the end of the story, not at the, of the chapter, mm-hmm. not at the uh, very beginning. So when you embrace that, you really feel like, oh man, I guess we're in the hands of a master here. He's really got things under control. He's like a duck on a June bug, my friend. So <laughs> but- He's on top of things. That's what that means. <laughs> But yeah, that that one was good. That was when I remember writing things out before we recorded that one. And I was like, oh, wait, is that is that it? Is Did I figure it out? Because I usually don't have that kind of, like, I get the feeling that you have a lot of those moments of like, aha. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> That's my life. I don't get those quite as much for me. It's always like, hmm, could be kind of, kind of. So it was nice to sort of have one of those, like, <laughs> I think this is it. That was really cool. <laughs> so. No, I mean, I'm also curious about the cloth because we're actually going to see the claw work more often. And Severian brings up questions about how it works. I mean, that's actually part of his worrying is wondering, why does it work sometimes? Why does it not work other times? Does it have to do with me? Does it have to do with circumstances? We know that it's his power from somewhere else. You and I have talked about whether it's for Severian letting it work or not given certain situations, but that's at a textual level, what I really want to pay attention to as we go through is what clues do we get that maybe I've missed before about the claw working or not. So, so those are kind of my big things. Do you have something for claw? I have nothing. I'm intimidated by claw because of that big play in the middle. Yeah. I didn't mention that. I I have an understanding of what it's supposed to be, but I have no understanding of what it is. That thing that Michael Swanwick said about tracking song that at the end of the story, he has an explanation for everything. If you're as smart yeah. as Gene Wolfe. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's the explanation for everything and explains nothing for me at this time. And I actually have already begun writing the skeleton for that. I mean, to me, I think I know what it is. It's an allegory of the story. And, uh, you know, that first man thing, you know, if you think that a first variant theory is not going to come up, you're crazy. But <laughs> I still can't put it all together. I don't know. I don't know. And I already know that there are so many big empty holes, like that guy hiding in the in the house. Absolute. I can't even remember his name right oh, now. Oh, yeah. Heather's buddy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what the heck? And Yeah, there's going to be stuff. Yeah. I'm already thinking of problematic chapters. So that's this is going to be an interesting ride, I think. We're getting into the stuff that I really wanted to do the reading for. I have to admit, I think everybody is so much more familiar with Shadow because we've all probably read it a few times. And if you're like me, mm-hmm. you've read the first half of the book like three times before you ever finished it. You know, so everybody knows those those things. But there are things in Claw that and Sword, yeah, and well, just all three of them <laughs> that, that you know just haven't gotten as much attention on the Earth list or that in chats and and in as much detail. So it's going to be good. Otherwise, no, I just have to say. That even after spending a year and a half of very slowly reading a book, you know, that I've already read many, many times before, I'm happy to report that I still love it. So that is good. Well, I am amazed that 
I like it more. That's good. Carefully drilled into a book that was never my favorite. I appreciated it for what I thought it was, but had no idea that I was going to be as amazed by it at the end of this process after, for what, 25 years of reading it. Well, that's good. You can feel like you're more of a part of the wolf community now because <laughs> everybody loves New Sun. Yeah, I, I'm one of y'all. So, yeah, that's that's the end of Shadow of the Torturer. Or is it? <laughs> I hope you have comments, thoughts, corrections, and complaints, and that you'll bring them to us on the Facebook group, the subreddit, Twitter, or email. You can find out how to do that in the show notes. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Tell your wolf-reading friends. And until you hear from us next, may the Moira favor you. And we'll see you in Saltus. If the moon turns green And shadows get up and walk around Clouds come tumbling to the ground I wouldn't be surprised didn't you fall in love with me if the stars turn blue and willows that weep begin to sing when it changes into spring I wouldn't raise my eyes Cause didn't you fall in love with me I thought I to think of romance with someone as charming as you I thought I was hoping without any chance then every hope came true if the moon turns green and rivers begin to flow upstream this is all a crazy dream, I wouldn't be surprised. Anything can happen if you can fall in love with me. Well, we do have a little bit of time. It's so that you can juxtapose. <clears throat> Let's try again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Hang on. Yeah, record that. Um, <laughs> Bloopers. Oh, shoot. Wait. Did we say his name? Did we say Mal Rubius? Did you say it? Yeah, I said, yeah, we'll start with Mal Rubius. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. If not, I'll just record it in. Yeah. It's a sociology. It's a, yeah. There was something else I was going to say. I had a. You have a whole page of stuff. You can't be done yet. Yeah, I know. I, I was reading what I had there and I'm like, that's not quite what I wanted to say. Well, there's something else. Let me, hold on. Let me think for a second. I got to think of a better way to get to the stuff about. It's kind of a meet cute, right? It's a murderous uh, romantic comedy. Okay. I've forgotten the name of it. Oh, the, um, yeah, the area. The art of praxis, something. What is the that word yeah because it was a good word <laughs> i know i need that <laughs> there you go but yeah because it was because we actually learned i think we both learned more about that word that time yeah about it being no, 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 no. where is it do, 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 do. it's on the tip of my tongue come on echopraxia there it is. Yeah. so is there something else you want to add about shadow no 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 i think uh... 
you you had had that email at the end. I didn't know if that was something. No, yeah, I think I planned to want to do something with it, but I never ended actually doing it. That was a okay. that was actually something from the Earth List uh, ten years ago. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. conversation, and I don't remember. I thought it would be useful. <laughs> and then, yeah, I, there, that's a lot of words for me. You know, if we wanted to make a ton of work for ourselves, like people who write a whole lot in like and give tons of comments. We need like special little tag music tags for everybody. Yeah, really? yeah, they should. Yeah, <laughs> that could be a Patreon thing. That's your Patreon. Oh bonus. wow! Yeah, how much would you pay to always have your ta- names tagged? Like even through. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay, that's something. That's something to put a pin in. Okay. <laughs>